We will not cancel us. We hurt people. Of course we did. We're human. We were traumatized, socialized away from interdependence. We learned to hide everything real, everything messy, weak, complex. We learned that fake shit hurts, but it's acceptable. Our swallowed pain made us a piece of shit, or depressed, or untrustworthy, or paranoid, or impotent, or an egomaniac. We moved with the herd, or became isolationist and contrary, perhaps even controversial. We disappointed each other at the level of race, gender, species. In a vast way, we longed for more from us. But we will not cancel us. This is a podcast for you. This is a podcast for me. This is a podcast for the world we want to see. This is an ode to the commons from which we have fallen. This is a prayer for our return, for the return of a smile, for the return for a while, to the village, to the passion, to the expression, to the journey, to the spirit. My name is Aliko. I'm an event producer, designer, photographer, coach, serial entrepreneur, community curator, and anti-capitalist somatic historian. In this podcast, we explore the many threads of what holds us all in the fabric of life, spirit, business, liberation, music, culture, nature, and more. We the people join you the people for the people podcast. So this is a special episode of For the People podcast because it is a recording of an event that was produced by me and Beck's Lip in May of 2023. Clementine Morgan and Jay Le Soleil are the socialists behind the fucking canceled podcast. Their podcast offers analysis and critique of cancel culture and social justice orthodoxy while moving towards a vision for the left grounded in solidarity, freedom, and responsibility. A left that is capable of posing a real and tangible threat to capitalism. So this podcast is a recording of a conversation around cancel culture, trauma and survivorship, identity and inclusion, abolition in action, and compassion with me, my good friend Bex, who's a mental health therapist and pleasure activist, with Lux Gypsum, who is a conflict and culture scholar, profound human being, and Morgan Vanderpool, who is a collective nervous system mechanic. So all of us are coming together to interview and have a panel with Clementine and Morgan about these topics. This is an extremely amazing conversation that we've had the pleasure of having with Clementine and Morgan. Clementine has over 50,000 plus Instagram followers and is a huge, huge disruptor in the social justice left. Uh, I really love her work. Check it out at Clementine Morgan. Um, and she's also got several books and zines. And she's just an incre- amazing, like, just chill, punk, down-to-earth, grassroots human being who 
speaks on really important things uh, for our cultural revolution being aligned, deeply aligned with compassion and solidarity for one another, no matter who we are across any identity. She has been a huge, huge catalyst in my healing around identity and around building solidarity across identity and nuance and conflict and, and trauma healing. Uh, Clementine has made a huge impact on my life. I really, really hope you enjoy this conversation. Canceling is punishment, and punishment doesn't stop the cycle of harm, not long-term. Cancellation may even be counter-abolitionist. Instead of prison bars, we place each other in an overflowing box of untouchables, often with no trial, and strip us of past and future, of the complexity of being gifted and troubled, brilliant and broken. We will set down this punitive measure and pick each other up, leaving no traumatized person behind. We will not cancel us, but we must earn our place on this earth. We will tell each other we hurt people and who. We will tell each other why and who hurt us and how. We will tell each other that we will do what we will do to heal ourselves and heal the wounds in our wake. We will be accountable rigorous in our accountability, all of us unlearning and all of us crawling towards dignity. We will learn to set up and hold boundaries, communicate without manipulation, give and receive consent, ask for help, love our shadows without letting them rule our relationships, and remember we are of earth, of miracle, of a whole, of a massive river. Love, life, life, love. We all have work to do. Our work is in the light. We have no perfect moral grounds to stand on, shaped as we are by the toxic, complex time. We may not have time or emotional capacity to walk each path together. We are all flailing in the unknown at the moment, terrified, stretched beyond ourselves, ashamed, realizing the future is in our hands. We must all do our work, be accountable, and go heal. Simultaneously, continuously, it is never too late. We will not cancel us. If we give up this strategy, we will learn together the other strategies that will ultimately help us break these cycles, liberate future generations from the burden of our shared and private pain, leaving nothing unspeakable in our bones, no shame in our dirt. Each of us is precious. We together must break every cycle that makes us forget this. Adrienne Marie Brown. Thank you all, hello, welcome to fucking real. Yeah. <laughs> you can holler for that. <laughs> I've been reading this book, We Will Not Cancel Us by Adrienne Marie Brown. And I read that passage yesterday. I was out laying in the sunshine and I was like, that's how we need to open this space. <laughs> we need to hear these words. <laughs> um, I feel really grateful to 
that human as a teacher and for setting the context of our space together. My name is Bex, uh, pronouns they, them. I'm one of the co-producers and co-hosts of this uh, awesome evening, this awesome conversation with these awesome humans. Want to welcome us all to the space, welcome you all to Seattle. They have been uh, <laughs> traveling across the country. It's been a little wild, so we hear. <laughs> Fucking crazy, if you will. <laughs> well, welcome to the Pacific Northwest. Here in Seattle, we live on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, um, including the Duwamish people. And one way that we can be in solidarity with uh, indigenous folks in this area is by um, paying real rent um, towards the Duwamish tribe who are still federally unrecognized. Um, so if you are someone who lives in this area and we're all for solidarity, um, I know that's one of our shared values, and we'll be talking about that in a little bit. Um, can uh, encourage folks to check out Real Rent Duwamish um, so that we can all be living uh, harmoniously with one another, with the land itself. There's so much beauty in this land that we that we get to call home. A lot of us, the the waters, the trees, the the earth itself. So want to just like honor honor that in this space too. We've got an ambitious agenda for, uh, for tonight. We're going to talk about some big topics. Um, we kind of have four kind of like main areas that are all, you know, like blend into each other. And and we have so many questions and we hope to get to all of them. And if we don't, that, that that's a thing. <laughs> um, but some of the things that we're going to talk about in are, include our trauma, both individually and collectively, um, how we are all survivors and many of us perpetrators as well of all sorts of things, um, and especially survivors. We're all surviving under capitalism, which is pretty fucked up. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about identities and how complex that is to navigate our identities and mix spaces together. How can we create inclusive movements uh, that honor our fully complex identities and messy human selves? Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit about abolition and accountability and how do we care for one another when we make when we fuck up when we when we hurt each other and um, how do we actually authentically heal from the harm that we cause? Um, we're going to talk about our pain and we're going to talk about compassion and how feeling pain allows us to actually be able to connect with each other and and have compassion for other people. So no big deal. We're going to try to cram this into, you know, like a couple hours and it's going to go great. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, I'm going to, uh, let's see. Uh, since I'm kind of already talking about this, I just want to set up a couple like intentions and agreements. Um, and then I'll turn it over to my co-host, Liko, who's going to kind of give a over overview of like how the how the evening's going to work out. Um, but I borrowed some of um, Clementine and Jay's principles that they talk about on their podcast in terms of, you know, kind of our shared values around having these conversations and doing this work. So um, some of the things that we are practicing together is curiosity, complexity, humility, integrity, responsibility, solidarity, and courage. As I mentioned, we have a lot to talk about and relatively little time. So one of my like personal agreements that I really love is to expect and accept non-closure. This is one thread in a really big series of conversations that we need to continue to be having. It's necessarily imperfect, it's necessarily incomplete, um, but we're gonna do our fucking best, so 
great. <laughs> in terms of content, uh, as you probably noticed, we're going to be talking about some really heavy stuff, including uh, abuse, systemic harm, interpersonal violence, prisons, things like that. These are these are really intense. These are really real. They impact us in really real ways in our bodies. So just want to invite all of us to really resource ourselves and take care of ourselves in whatever way you need to for your body. Um, resource yourself with your breath. If you need to put a hand on your chest, if you need to get up and stand in the back, if you need to stretch your legs, if you need to eat a snack, hopefully you brought some with you because we don't have any. But <laughs> the taking care of ourselves is, there is an intermission, you can go get a snack. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really believe that taking care of ourselves is how we take care of each other and uh, taking care of each other is how we take care of ourselves. So let's uh, let's practice that. And then in terms of this conversation, consider aftercare. Which might you be like, what is this, a sex party? And hang around, <laughs> stick around and find out. But <laughs> no, but after. <laughs> that Seattle, you probably won't allow that. <laughs> yeah, no, probably not. The priest is going to show up. No, but aftercare in terms of how are you taking care of yourself? How are you processing and integrating this conversation? You know, hopefully you're here with a, with a friend or two or five, you know, what does it bring up for you? How are you taking care of yourself? How are we going to take care of ourselves? Now I'm going to pass it over to Hi, y'all. My name is Aliko to introduce your logistics for the evening. Um, but before that, uh, I just want to say honored to be hosting you all, honored to be having this conversation and across binaries and, um, yeah, in solidarity with the world we want to see. Uh, I have a production company. It's called We Are You Productions because we are you and we are everyone. And we focus on art, music, and educational events, everything from big festivals for like 300 people to intimate gatherings like this. And the educational festivals are honestly my favorite. And educational events are honestly my favorite. So, so excited to be doing this. Uh, thank you, Seattle U as well for uh, hooking it up. So bathrooms, the AFAB bathroom is over there and the AMAB bathroom is over there, but honestly, like switch it up. Um, <laughs> pee wherever uh, you need to pee. Yeah. What like within reason? <laughs> wow, I'm on fire. <laughs> in, in one of the bathrooms, thank you. I will be specific. Um, in the toilet. I'm fine. Make me be more specific. Y'all are too much. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and then we'll have an intermission. So I'll explain to you how the evening's going. We're gonna do part one. It's about forty-five minutes. Then we're going to have a, about a 10-minute intermission. You can go stretch. You can go get a snack. You can go to the bathroom in the toilet. <laughs> um, and then we're going to have uh, part two, which is about another 45 minutes. And then we're going to open it up to the room, about a half an hour Q&A. Uh, and then we're going to have a close. And there should be some more people coming in. So you might need to squeeze, but maybe not, because it is sunny in Seattle and that. Is like the this is like the first real day, so and welcoming you too. Yeah, I know these two have been through a lot. I just want to presence like last night was literally a shit show. Yeah, um, it's not it's not it's funny, but it's like also not funny like to be on tour, be spending your hard earned like time and to have these conversations with people and. 
than to be wrecked the way you were. Um, their their car was uh, covered in literal feces last night, and their tires slashed, and they still made it here. Yeah, and uh, cancel culture isn't real, so tell that to my fucking car. Does your car have a name? No, but it's a little red Chevy. I guess they, I'm like, I probably shouldn't say that now because I'm doxing myself, but like, <laughs> uh, we like, I've unfortunately, like, I knew that in my over, like my oversharing on the internet, there had been like pictures of my car. Like I knew that in various times I'd shown pictures of my car and we also have Quebec plates. So we literally parked the car because we were in Portland last night, right? So we parked the car like several blocks. Everyone's like, oh. We, we yeah. <laughs> We parked the car several blocks away from the venue because we were afraid of getting our tires slashed. Um, and then we did the event and then we went back to the car and we like got in the car. And we we're like, wow, it fucking stinks in this car. We were like, really? Like we've been on the road for a month. We were like, is it that bad? Like, what the fuck are we smelling? And then we got out and there was literal fucking like liquefied shit poured all over the front of the car and our tires were slashed. Which like makes me wonder if they were like putting it in like a blender. Like how do you guys have so much liquefied <laughs> shit? Seriously. It's like, it's like a lot of effort, you know? It was like literally like, you know. Yeah, and also they were like driving around looking for my car. Um, and yeah, so we were fucking exhausted because, you know, we were already exhausted. We've been on the road for a month. And then at the end of the night after our event, we had to wait for like an hour and a half for a tow truck, like take the the car to a place we had to like figure out what to do in a city we're not living in and then we had to get up super early to like go to the tire place where we had like left the car to like first thing when they opened to make sure that we could get tires so that we could make it to seattle today because we had an event today in seattle so it's been fucking hectic so if we're like a little like not on our a-game that's why so thank you for your understanding and compassion it's all good we, we made it yeah Can't stop us Clementine and Morgan and Jay Le Soleil. Le, Le Soleil, super. Um, Clementine, Morgan, and Jay Le Soleil are the socialists behind the fucking canceled podcast. Their podcast provides a framework for understanding what is happening to the left and why by analyzing and critiquing a phenomenon that is they call the nexus, a synthesis of identitarianism, social media, and cancel culture. As recovering addicts who live their lives by a set of spiritual and ethical principles they offer these principles as guiding light towards a vision of the leftist movement grounded in solidarity freedom and responsibility thank you word and who else are we having in conversation tonight to my left my dear friend morgan vanderpool pronouns they them Morgan is an ecologically and intersectionally grounded collective nervous system mechanic. Need more of those. Trauma-sensitive movement specialist, restorative practice facilitator, and community builder. They have been in direct or relational connection with almost every system of harm and healing out there. They're dedicated to facilitating inclusive, accessible, mycelially grounded, and somatically abolitionist restorative embodiment practices. Say that 10 times fast. No, don't. Um, um, anyways, to strengthen our collective capacity to healthfully grieve with and honor 
every neuro-spicy layer of our badass survivor selves. So we may be co-building, co- so we may co-build thriving nervous and ecosystems one breath at a time. <sighs> Fucking love that bio. <laughs> also not listed in my notes, but Morgan is one of the co-hosts of the Queerly Forward podcast, which is co-hosted by me and Morgan, which was released yesterday. Very exciting. And we've got Lux over here, the lovely Lux. Um, they use they, them pronouns. Lux is a liberation-driven and trauma-informed conflict mediator, facilitator, and consultant, helping us cultivate a truly healing communities by embodying the world we strive to create on a relational level. Lux offers regular online and in-person workshops on communication, navigating conflict, giving and receiving feedback, and building a strong practice of boundaries and consent. They are also support individuals, couples, and polycules in healing from harmful socializations and attachment wounds to be to build secure and loving relationships. Lux is motivated by their deep love for the world, commitment to decolonization and divesting from domination culture, and their capacity to hold complexity with clarity and compassion. And they do that very, very well, y'all. Thank you so much, Liko. And yeah, we're blessed to be hosted by Aliko who was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, to a French Ashkenazi Jew, or Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jewish mother and a Caribbean father. Aliko is a first-generation, trans, Black-presenting, bilingual Jewish entrepreneur and producer. Aliko is the founder and director of Our Living Design Studio and Good for Chocolate, and the founder of We Are You Productions and Expansion Festival. Aliko is a coach, producer, designer, and speaker, and is currently deepening his foundation as an anti-capitalist somatic historian. Through all of his businesses, events, expertise, and hobbies, he is able to live out his dedication to carving out spaces for humanity through his work. Thanks, Aliko. Um, can I just jump in and thank you guys so much for hosting us? I know this is in the script, but like, honestly, this of the whole tour, this is the event that like we did not organize or produce. Like you guys totally took the reins and you like made this happen and you put a lot of work into it. So I wanted to thank you for that. And also the fact that the one that we aren't like totally steering happened after our tires got slashed is like really convenient. So <laughs> thank you so much for like making this event happen. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we got you. Yay. Cheers to wonderful humans. One that I get to introduce is named Bex Lips. Such a good name. Uh, uses they, she pronouns. Is an ineffable being made of electric energy, fierce compassion, deep cackling laughter. Woo, that's good. This queer, non-binary Jew witch wears many hats, including facilitator, mental health therapist, community song tender with the people's echo. Shout out to y'all. You're wonderful. MC and burlesque drag performer and producer. They're fire. Um, they are also one of the co-hosts of our freshly released Queerly Forward, a podcast that we get to muse on queerness, holistic healing, pleasure and sexuality, and collective liberation. Bex weaves their magic into community spaces with a reverence for ritual and a healthy dose of humor and playfulness. Much love, fun. Such a pleasure to be here tonight with all of these fucking badass humans. <laughs> 
Well, before we kind of dive into the meat of our conversation, we just threw a lot of like logistic and bio and stuff at you. So we wanted to just take a moment to kind of collectively ground uh, and, you know, kind of refocus our, our intentions and whatnot into into this conversation. Uh, so I'm going to pass it over to Morgan to take us there and into the into the flow. Into the flow. Yeah, let's go. Um, in whatever way it feels helpful to start to feel your body, you are welcome to stay in your chair, stand up, sit down, find the floor, whatever that might be. And in whatever way it feels helpful to you, maybe inviting your attention to the parts of your body that are supported by something and the parts of your body that are supporting your body. You're going to practice with your eyes open, your eyes closed, however that works for you. And maybe with the next couple of breaths, knowing the, noticing the integrity of your spine, how it's supporting you, and maybe some ways that you might be feeling your breath moving through your body. I'm trying to judge volume. So I just want to invite us into resourcing from our bodies. We have wonderful 600 muscles that are allies to continue to keep us in some sort of flow of movement, of breath and presence as we're here. As we enter into this tricky business to try to use English to co-create a liberatory conversation. None of us have learned English in a nonviolent way. So taking whatever kind of breaths, wiggles, sways that your body might be asking for right now, if there's some place that might need to get stretched out or noticed. I also want to invite in the opportunity for us to recognize that our bodies carry both the wisdom and the, limit, the limitations of our ancestors. And that we're doing the wild business of coming to hang out with one another, recognizing that our ancestors probably did not get along very well. We inherited some stuff that might make it difficult for us to do so but that we're making the commitment to bring in their wisdom to do this well with one another as best as we can. And I also want to invite in like the well and good ancestors that we all know and have been keeping an eye on and watching how we can design collaboratory relationships with one another, inviting their wisdom into this space and how they show up in our minds, our hearts, and the ways that we connect with one another. So cheers to the wisdom of your survivorship in your body. It is wise, it is wonderful, it is brilliant. Let's bring our best every breath. And our best is going to change with every breath. So please remember that you're welcome to stay in your chair. If at any point you want to stand up and find a rail to stretch on, we've got some folks that'll be modeling how to do that. <laughs> we like to move here. It's great. Um, I'll probably be getting up in and out of my chair too. Um, I'm neurospicy as fuck and staying still is really hard uh, while trying to be on a mic and not blast y'all's ears out. Um, but speaking of nervous systems, uh, our first conversation, we're going to open up the uh, exploration of our survivorship, our survivorship of trauma, both individually and collectively, and how that all mishmashes together, um, and how we can bring that wisdom to our work with one another. Um, and so our first question to kick off the panel, and we can, you know, figure out consensually how to share airtime and like, you know, weave each other's wisdom together. Um, the question to start out with tonight is how does trauma impact our ability to relate with one another and organize for change? I mean, I think there's a couple, maybe a couple trauma nerds on this uh, panel, probably not the only one, but I guess what it's bringing to mind for me right now is basically there is a framework um, inside social justice culture, or what Jay and I call the nexus on the podcast, where, you know, we are taught that the, the way to support survivors is basically to provide validation that like what survivors need is validation and that the best way to support survivors is to tell them like basically like I believe you and what happened to you is real. Um, but trauma is actually like 
part of what trauma is, is it's experiencing a nervous system and emotional reaction appropriate to something that happened in the past in the present. And so often trauma survivors have an emotional response that is like visceral and embodied that is appropriate to something that happened to them in the past that isn't happening right now, right? And so when you tell someone, basically, like, when your level of support is just your feelings are real and, like, what you are feeling is true, it's not, in my opinion, that helpful because there's no discernment there. And, like, what trauma survivors actually need as a more nuanced level of support, in my opinion, is support with discernment between when you're having a nervous system response how much of that is about what's happening now and how much of it is about what happened in the past um, and as i have recovered in my own trauma like i have seen that my capacity to like tell the difference has really really grown but before it really was not um, easy for me to do that and i very often had like disproportionate nervous system responses to things um, and that, that can unfortunately lead to situations where survivors are like exiting situations that they don't need to exit like they're ending relationships that they don't need to end they're perceiving conflict in ways that is like absolutely like drastic and it can be like very very isolating and so I think that that's operating for a lot of people and I think that we need like a certain level of discernment in our communities and in our friendships and relationships to help each other kind of map out like yes the the nervous system reaction that you're having is absolutely real and like needs to be taken care of and at the same time, like once you're regulated a bit, we can talk about what is actually happening in the present and try to figure out how much of the nervous system reaction is actually about that. Does that make sense? That's what comes up for me. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, if people are having like really heightened emotional reactions to the things that are happening to them, and also they're sort of being um, the, the orthodoxy that they're surrounded by is uh, that all of all of their emotional reactions are sort of like equally um, valid and important and like shouldn't be sort of like questioned in any way. It can lead to some really wacky places, including um, people acting in in quite um, it, it potentially quite antisocial ways and like hurting other people, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's, which is another sort of like issue with the 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 binary of like survivor versus perpetrator or whatever is like very often like the same person. I think one thing that um, comes up for me that I want to name is that there's just lots of different kinds of trauma, right? You have, you know, a, I'm not going to be able to list every single one, but, you know, you have an acute trauma, like you think of it like someone gets in a car accident, for example, like that's a traumatic incident. You have, um, you know, you know, chronic trauma or someone's, you know, say like exposed to abuse over a period of time, Um there's also like, you know, big T trauma, like uh, that big accident was probably like a big T trauma. But like there's also like the like little T traumas that like happen to us like throughout our lives, the most of ex experience. Um, and then there's also like collective trauma and intergenerational trauma. And like, you know, I think I feel pretty safe to argue that we're all traumatized under capitalism. Um, and so I think it's really important for us to like have the trauma informed lens of it's not just like there are survivors and there are perpetrators like in a big way, like we're all survivors out here. We're all like, you know, and we all have different ex levels of experience with like trauma and how we've been impacted by, uh, you know, say interpersonal violence or systemic harm or, and violence. Um, but that just like feels really important to name is like trauma is 
kind of the water that we're swimming in, you know? Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of ways that we are experiencing things that we don't identify as trauma, like you said, like capitalism or like white supremacy culture. That's, you know, one way of naming like the vast like cultural sea we swim in, at least here in America, that involves like urgency, that involves like scarcity. And um, all of those are also like features of trauma responses often, like binary thinking, you know, those that culture, like I used to think like I haven't experienced much trauma because I haven't like directly been like experienced really like intense boundary ruptures in my physical body. But then I think of like the way my parents have internalized certain aspects of our culture that have like put me in a like stressful feeling as a child, like I can't make mistakes, you know, and that's that's a form of trauma. And that affects how I relate to other people, how I relate to their ability to make mistakes and to accept them in their full humanness. Um, and if we're not like undoing and addressing that trauma at the cultural level, like we're also not going to, you know, we're still going to um, fight as we're organizing for change and in our personal relationships across difference, like that stuff is going to come up and we're not often even seeing it as trauma. It's interesting because if, when we take this expansive view of trauma and we, we note that um, a lot of different people are experiencing things that could be thought of as traumatic and are carrying that around with them, then what we're left with is uh, the fact that this question, the question you asked, actually just becomes how do we get along with each other? Like, like that's the, that's literally what that ends up meaning, you know, um, and 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 like you know we're asking like how do we deal with the fact that we're human, right? Like that's that's what the question is, um, and you know I, I, it's an important question. I think it's a good question too. And like something actually Clementine said this yesterday at our event, and I really liked it. Is it just that like like we don't care if you're good. It doesn't interest us at all. And like we we just care that you're like a person, you know, and. Um, we're not interested in like tallying up like the like harms that people have done or how accountable they've been or whatever. Like really, I don't, I couldn't give a fuck. Um, like what I care about is that you're a person, you have like inherent dignity um, and that like we're, we're all like often like being wounded in different ways by the world that we live in. And uh, we have to be able to deal with that. You know, my job, my day job is I work at a homeless shelter and you know, like 100% of chronic, chronically homeless people have like severe childhood trauma. Um, I can say that with absolute certainty. And, you know, so like the kinds of people who are the most disposed of, um, who are the most invisible, who are definitely the most marginalized are, um, are people who experience like massive amounts of trauma, you know? And like, they're the kinds of people who like literally if they came into this room, like people would be tempted to like call security or something, you know? And yeah, so that's the kind of thing that I always think about. It's the kind of thing that motivates my thinking. And when, you know, people are like on a kick of trying to figure out who's good and who's not, I'm like, this is not the question. And the question is like, how do we deal with people who've like been through like insane shit and are trying to survive? Can I just slightly riff off that? I once had a spiritual experience involving a bat. In that moment, this line popped into my head, which I has been a part of my writing since then, which is, being good will never solve the problem because the problem is not that I am bad. And yes, that came through a spiritual experience involving a bat, but a flying bat. A baseball like, oh bat. Exactly. No, 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 no. Let's specify. <laughs> a flying bat. An animal bat. The kind that flits about in the sky. Thank you for the clarifying question. Everyone's like, Clementine, what? Um, like rage as a ritual? <laughs> 
Yeah. And I, and so one of the things that just kind of that line was popping into my head when Jay was saying that, and I wanted to say, like, I have a lot of respect for Adrian Marie Brown and for the, the piece that you started this event with. But one of the things that she says in it that I don't agree with is she says, like, we have to earn our place on this earth. She says that in the, that piece. And it's actually the opposite that line is the opposite of my politics because I actually don't believe that we have to earn our place on this earth. I believe that that is inherent and it's not something that people have to earn. And I also don't think that it's something that we can ever take away from people as much as we want to try. And so I think that all people are inherently belonging and inherently deserving. And that is not something that we earn by being good. And I think that sometimes, unfortunately, like, when we're traumatized, especially in like developmental trauma and the types of trauma that happen in our childhoods, we get this deep desire to try to earn love by being good. And that plays out in our adult lives in all sorts of ways. And it also plays out in our politics. And we see this in social justice culture and in cancel culture that we're going to be talking about tonight. There's so many people are trying so fucking hard to be good because they believe that being good is how they're going to belong. And what I'm interested in is like what happens to our political work when we are freed from that that compulsion because we realize that we don't fucking have to be good because that's not the problem and it never was. Like we are already inherently deserving and we already inherently belong. One of the things I've been recently saying is what well, actually came to me in a spiritual experience in an ayahuasca journey actually. Um, she was like, write this down. I was like, okay. Um, she was like, capitalism is a broken child. And in my, in my journey, I saw this little boy in middle-age Europe um, who didn't have his needs met from, like, the 15, like, way back when, like, 1300s. And I was the one um, to give him love and meet his needs and let him find his way back to joy by just presence, like, all a kid needs when they're just, like, emotional presence. And then I saw this kid with its needs met, like grow out of the earth as this beautiful, gorgeous man bestowing gifts upon the earth. And I was like, oh my God, that's a kid. The capitalism is a kid that never got its needs met. And it's like, and I've been saying like, we're all broken children of capitalism. But one of my favorite teachers, her name is Teal Swan. And she says that we are born like a river whole, flowing down like a stream. And when trauma happens, we fracture like streams and not the goal of life, but like one of the, one of the goals of life is to kind of bring the streams back to the river to, to bring all our broken pieces from our memories, from our childhood back to the infinite consciousness or the, the flowing river of our wholeness. And if any conversation in relationship with all of our traumas, like, like, on our, in our bodies just like bouncing back and forth with one another like we're the streams are like hitting the other streams and and it's like for me one of the questions of following up around this is like how do we slow down enough to make mistakes okay in a way and how do we slow down enough to uh see each other's um like human, like to really honor each other's humanness. This is one thing I've been also thinking about, like when I'm triggered by other people. Um, it's, I've boiled it down to th kind of three things. And the first is I do the same shit they're doing. <laughs> like I literally, oh, you're texting and driving? Oh, cool. 
I also do that. Like, <laughs> and, and the second one is, and this is how I've done it. I found compassion for every single human being because I was like, oh yeah, I do the same shit. Or the se if I'm triggered by someone like this, the second thing is uh, I'm jealous. I'm envious and envy is this weird tab taboo feeling we're not really supposed to feel. So I see this like pretty white guy walking down the street with like cool REI gear. I'm like, Ugh, you know what I mean? But I will also actually get under the root. Like I'm, I'm Give jealous. It to me. That's the other <laughs> thought. Like I'm Give jealous. It to me now. Can we, can we, and can we be, can we open that up? Right. And the third is like when I'm judging someone, I'm realizing how capitalism has impacted them. So if, let's say it's a sketchy person on the street or whatever. I'm not actually judging them. I'm in judging the entire system that has made this person be the way they are, you know? And so for me and for all three of those points, like I can find compassion, like feel it to heal it. Like I see myself in you. That's how I've done it. But I'm curious, like how have you, how do we slow down enough in the moments where our streams are hitting each other to really like be with one another? And I know Morgan, you also have some follow-up questions, so... Um, yeah, well, I think both Clementine and I have like our our whole deal uh, with that kind of shit is uh, really really wrapped up in twelve step stuff because we both come from twelve step world. Um, we've both been sober for about ten years. Um, uh, Clementine just got eleven. You're like count. And uh, I actually like forgot my sobriety date. I like no longer know. I've been meaning to find it out because um, I would like to take my ten year cake. But anyways. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, like there's a bunch of shit that they say in like AA and 12-step stuff that like really has always helped me with this kind of thing. Like there's honestly like so many different things. Like 12-step groups are really good for like little like pithy slogans that are just like seem like really like seem like really kind of like like cheap. And then you like think about it. You're like, that's like really fucking deep. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, one is like, um, well, it's not a slogan, but it's just in the literature. Like they say like, uh, uh, we don't crawl before anyone. Number one, and then in another place in the literature, it says we are not saints. And so, like these two things, like keep like keep me right sized. You know, like I will not fucking crawl before anyone. You know, um, like I'm not worse than you, and like you can't degrade me by saying anything to me, and I don't fucking care. Um, and also, like I'm not better than you, and I'm not I'm not better than me either. Like I'm just I'm just like a normal person, you know. Um, and that's all that I can be expected to be. It would be weird for me to expect myself to be like canonized or to be or or and it's also like it's it's um self-obsessed for me to think that i'm like worse than everyone else too because i'm clearly not i'm just a, a person you know so i have to be like right-sized you know um that's another thing that we say in the program but like that helps me just like you know when i like look at other people i'm like not better than you no worse than you um and it's like it makes it a lot easier honestly to just kind of be like well people are going through what they're going through you know um, and everybody is like on whatever wacky journey they're on. I've been on a wacky journey myself, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm sure Clementine has lots to say about it as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that we do like, like a subtle form of dehumanization on a regular basis because it's hard to hold the fullness of each human in our day-to-day -day lives. Right. So I think like what you're talking about with the driving thing, since I learned how to drive, I'm like, this is such a perfect example because when people are just like 
there are people are road raging and they literally do the same shit. And it's but when you're doing it, you're inside yourself and you're like, I know that I don't always do this. And I know that like I have a really good reason for doing it. And you have a and you're also like a full person to yourself. So like you're cutting yourself a bit of slack and you know who you are, you know your whole story. But they're just like some fucking guy in a car. Right. And so like, fuck that guy, you know, and I feel like you know, we do that all the time in various ways, sometimes in very severe ways and sometimes in just minimal ways. And like, yes, it's true that in our day to day lives, if we try to like fully and like consciously hold the complex humanity of every single person in every interaction, we might like pass out or something. <laughs> but I think it's like a very important like ethical and spiritual practice to connect to that as viscerally as you can, like as often as you can and to really connect and it's not that complicated because it's just like think about yourself right you know that you are fucking complex like you know your internal world you know like the vastness of what you're capable of feeling and like the different states that you're capable of being in and your complex history and you know like the depth of your feeling and your hopes and your dreams and your fears and like all of that you know and you know the preciousness of, of the fact that like there's only one you and like in in my ayahuasca uh ceremony I don't know why this is where this is going but like, that's what it was all about, you know? It was it was just, like, the I already knew this, but, like, the, the fucking medicine showed me that so strongly that it was, like, staggering to me that, like, every being is so fucking, like, irreplaceable, you know, and, and distinct and precious, you know? And, like, we know this at, on some level, and it's just about, like, tapping into that and really remembering that, like, every fucking person is irreplaceable and precious. And so trying to infuse that into our day-to-day interactions as much as we're capable of oh my gosh so in like in honor of the multifaceted survivors that we are uh, we also have pretty similar nervous systems um, that respond in pretty similar patterns to kind of similar things um, and so I kind of want to presence that because our nervous systems are doing like an impeccable job trying to figure out how we're like relating with each other like moment to moment breath to breath um, and so any math nerds in the room with me People who like numbers, maybe, possibly. You're like, maybe, don't make me do anything. Okay, so this is imaginary math. Okay, so like, and the math for me is like a way to be able to like make things concrete that are kind of like inevitable. Um, and so our bodies like jam with me on because I think this is shared wisdom in the room. Our survivor re survi ah, survival responses start with trying to connect with each other. That's what our biological systems try to do. But typically we're so good at perceiving that connection's not possible that we'll pop into either fight or flight. And that's if our bodies feel safe enough to move. Now, if they don't feel safe enough to move, then our bodies will go into either submit, fawn, or appease, or a cocktail of the five, depending on how we're activated. That's common across humanity. That's what we share. That's what our body's gonna do to try to make sure that we take our next breath. And they're highly creative because we have a, a like wild, cool kaleidoscope of epigenetic understandings in our bodies that teach us how to stay here. So the math part, we got six survival responses. Now each of us has a wildly cool positionality of how we've survived colonialism, how we've survived racism, how we've figured out how to survive classism, how we've figured out how to survive every single ism out there, heteronormativity, cisnormativity. We each have done our thing to be able to make sure that we're taking our next breath. So it's, I've counted at about 16 systems of oppression. If you try to like separate them down, there may be more, but let's just say 16 for the heck of it, to the sixth power. That's what's happening when we get together in our nervous systems and we'll be popping in and out 
of our fight response with each other, our fawn response with each other, our freeze response with each other, every time we take a breath around one another and every time our heart beats. And so there's a lot going on. I don't know if I want to note. But the simpli- Whoa, but that's what's happening. Like, you know, like we're all sharing space right now. Our hearts are beating with one another. We're having this electrical conversation. Um, so we're like leaning into like the complexity of that with one another. And so the question that we have to kind of land us there and like muse on it is like, how can we take responsibility for our trauma responses in collective organizing? Because there are moments in which we are going to get activated all the time with one another and trauma in that way is in the present. Um, it's living and breathing in our bodies. So how can we take responsibility for our trauma responses in collective organizing? One thing I just want to jump in and say about this first and foremost is like I feel like there's kind of like two levels to how I want to answer these type of questions because there's sort of like what we can do now given the current circumstances and then there's like what we should be working towards on a society level. Because the thing is, is that most people can't fucking afford therapy, you know? And like, the thing is, is that this is why I'm a socialist, right? Because I like, you guys don't even have healthcare here. Even in Canada, like we technically have healthcare, but they're fucking gutting it. They're eroding it. They're, they're, they're pushing us towards privatization. And when we say we have healthcare, we don't fucking have dental. We certainly don't fucking have therapy, you know? Um, that is healthcare. And so when we're talking about all this stuff about how everyone, you know, most people have like some kind of level of trauma and a lot of people have like very severe levels of trauma, um, how are they supposed to deal with it and how are they supposed to show up in a responsible way when they are not resourced to actually fucking do the work that they need to do to actually show up, right? And like me, like I, when I first started my journey of like trauma recovery, I was a very fucking poor person. I did not have money. And I managed to string together therapy through like various free services in Toronto, the city that I was living in, by basically just like being really like tenacious and like showing up and like just like finding whatever free services I could and like stringing it together, you know, and I did that for like the first five years of my like trauma recovery. And like I wasn't even getting like appropriate therapy for like complex PTSD. I was just getting whatever was free, you know. And like that was me being stubborn as fuck, which I am that kind of person. For a lot of people, they just give up. And for a lot of people, there's not even free services or like they're really fucking hard to access. And so like I do think that we have a responsibility to be working on our trauma so that we can show up in a responsible way in relationship. But I also believe that collectively we will be able to do that responsibility better when we are working towards creating a more just system where people can access what they need. Right. So this is where the socialism piece comes in. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add to that. I mean, I think that's pretty on point. Like, how do we take responsibility for our trauma responses? I mean, I suppose the same way that we take responsibility for like anything we do, you know, it's um, we just have to take responsibility for our actions. I think like in terms of sort of like learning how to deal with like the the trauma that that we have, you know, like, yeah, like I think that if you can uh, and you know that you are that you have like PTSD, like it's a good idea to try to access therapy. But like Clementine was saying, like most people like simply can't. Um, and holding them to that would be you know a mistake uh, strategically and politically. But uh, yeah, twelve step groups are free, um, and you know it's not for everybody, but uh, they're helpful for a lot of people. You know, all of us humans are impacted differently by these various systems um, of capitalism, colonialism, racism, homophobia, the other 16. And so when we start to talk about um, identity, which is really complex, 
all of our identities are really complex. And I really believe that we can't reduce any human to one part of their identity. And it's true that we are differently. We all do have different positionalities. We are born into different circumstances. We are born into different contexts and we are impacted by these systems differently. And so um, I think, you know, there's in capitalism, there's this like scarcity mindset of like not enough, not enough, not enough. Um, when we know like actually like materially, like there is more than enough actually to go around for all of us. Um, and so I just want to, I don't know, start to like bring, bring identity into the, into the conversation and, um, add the layer of like how complex, um, our intersectional identities, um, make this trauma conversation. So I guess what I want to ask is how do we like authentically honor our identities um have an awareness of our identities without reducing one another to identities while also having an awareness that like based on our identities we might actually benefit from systems of oppression or be targeted by those systems of oppression and unknowingly perpetuate those systems, like help the system continue to oppress other people. How do we hold that awareness and to like bring back into like, yeah, you don't have to be good but we don't want to actively cause harm either. Like we don't want to actively hurt people. I think most of us don't want to actively hurt people. And there's a lot of pain around identity and how we perceive other people based on their identities and how other people, we, how we perceive other people to be perpetuating these systems. So your root question. Just, just vibe with me. <laughs> just vibe with me. I, I guess... One thing that this makes me think of is how our trauma responses sometimes are in relationship to certain identities, especially when you lay like systems of oppression on top of us. Right. So um, there has been direct like oppression from people who've looked a certain way towards people of another culture who've like look a different way on this continent, you know. And so even though the identity of whiteness is also like constructed and, you know, relatively new in the last couple hundred years in the creation of America and is a way of like allying white people to the powers of capitalism. Um, it's also like real in the sense, like you said, like white people benefit in some ways and some white people, right? Like white middle class people. Um, and that's not to say like all white people have the same financial privilege, but they're also like yeah, benefit from systems and are less likely to be targeted um, by like systems of violence. And um, that that means that it is sometimes like people of color will have trauma responses to white people being in space, being a certain way or even just being in our expressed selves. Um, and that is like a way that identity and trauma really intersect that I think we have to like hold um, compassion for. And understand, like, I am not entitled to someone trusting me because of the legacy of 
white violence um, in this country. And I'm also like, you know, as someone committed to collective liberation, it's like, how can I communicate and show my trustworthiness? Like, can I act and how can I undo any internalized like avoidance um, or in- internalized racism that like might make people more likely to be uh, like validly afraid of me? Um, like, what can I do to make people know I am more safe, like by how, what I wear or how, you know, how I look at them or who I'm friends with or, you know, how I communicate my work on my website. Like there's ways that we can acknowledge like that we're in relationship with these systems and we're in commitment to shifting them. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think, okay, so on this topic, I think that there's probably two main sort of like angles that Clementine and I tend to think about this stuff with. Like one is just sort of the 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 distinction between identity politics and identitarianism, which is I think is something that we're a little bit dancing around. Um, and then the second is the concept of solidarity, which I think is like the key to like everything that, that we're asking here. So I guess maybe I'll go into the first one and if maybe you want to jump on the second one, like we just do that. Um, yeah, because I think like basically on the podcast and like there's a whole, you know, segment of the left that critiques identitarianism very extensively, right? Um, and, and many people rightly feel that like, uh, you know, it, or they're, they're, they, they worry that um, that could mean that people are trying to say that identity has no bearing on anything, that it's not a useful measure for thinking about power, that it's not a useful way of thinking about the world, that we should ignore it, you know, basically at the expense of, or we should ignore it and we should only focus on like, you know, uh, reading Marx. Um, and, you know, so people, you know, people people rightly are like, well, I don't, I don't think that that's like a useful way of looking at the world. But the thing is, it's a bit of a straw man because that's not actually what identitarianism is. So like very, I'll try to very briefly like explain kind of the difference, the way that we think of it. Identity politics is literally just like, um, understanding that identity is an important element of the world and that it like colors our lives and, and it structures a lot of things about us. Right. Um, every, like national liberation movement against colonialism is a form of identity politics, right? So we can't just say right off the bat that identity politics is like a useless thing or something like that. That would be like a deeply silly thing to say. And of course, I think that 99.9% of the people in this room are queer. Um, and we, um, and so we, we have a, um, the like one heterosexual person's like, Oh, um, you're so welcome here. I see a couple. We have we have a vested interest in we have a vested interest in identity being, you know, like something that we're allowed to talk about that we think is important, et cetera, et cetera. Identitarianism, on the other hand, is um, a hyper focus on identity to the expense of everything else. Right. It makes us unable to think about the world in any terms other than identity, right? And this is something that we keep coming up against, I think, on the left. Like, we we have, like, a strong tendency to go in that direction to the extent that we, like, literally cannot conceptualize modes of power or um, anything else, really, history, you know, in, in, in terms of anything other than identity. And so that's where the problem really lies. And so we want to be able to bring in other elements when we're trying to think about power, when we're trying to think about history, we're trying to think about the world, um, that are not only identity because there are many elements at play right um yeah yeah and so we could talk about identitarianism forever but we won't um right now but 
one of the ways that identitarianism affects the way that we think about power on the social justice in the social justice world is that it basically creates this situation where people think that the way to understand power is to basically like add up identity points to be like you have these privileged identities and then you subtract these marginalized identities and then this is your powerpoint and then now we know like how how we are in relationship to each other and this is first of all it's not a very accurate measure for understanding what people's lives have been because identity does impact you know how people's lives have been and what their their circumstances are but they they affect that in like changing ways and in in an intersectional way in the true meaning of intersectionality in the sense that like it, there's many factors that shape your life, including identity, but not limited to identity. Um, and um, just adding up these points is like a very crude way of understanding how how people's lives are shaped by power. The other thing that is fucking important is that what we're basically doing is dividing up scraps among ourselves. We're dividing up the scraps that are being left to us by capitalists. And so when we start to do this, when we start to be like, you know, this person is privileged and so they get a little bit more of the tiny scraps that we're given and therefore we need to be spending our time making sure that they're redistributing those scraps. That is concerning to me because we are all, we have scraps, you know, um, and there are people who have fucking everything and they're keeping it from us, right? And so the thing is, is that when we, like, capitalists actually love us to be hyper-focused on identity. Because when we are hyper-focused on identity and we're hyper-focused on, ooh, you got a little bit more scraps than me, and we're fighting each other, we are not building solidarity. And when we are building solidarity, this is when we become a threat to capital. Yeah, and just real quickly, it's important to note that, like, um, old-school, like, racism is very much a form of identitarianism. Right. Like it's a way of seeing the world like purely in terms of an identity category. Right. And and imagining that you can tell something important about a person by looking at their phenotype. Like that's literally what racism is. Right. Um, and it is also a method of dividing like working people one from another to make sure that they are incapable of like joining up and using their collective power, which is the power of labor, to demand things from the ruling class. And there's just one other thing that I want to add to this is that not only you know, if if our goal is not to redistribute scraps amongst ourselves, but to actually like aim for the fucking prize that is being held captive by the people who are literally destroying the planet that we live on. If we actually want to change the economic system and do massive redistribution so that so many of us are not living in the fucked up conditions that we are living in. Well, solidarity is the answer to that, because it's like that is how like the thing is, is that there's more of us than there are of them. There are a lot more of us. So if we actually organize and work together, we would be much more effective. But I think a lot of people worry that this kind of approach might mean sort of sweeping things like homophobia, racism, transphobia, like under the rug, because we're saying, well, we need solidarity. So let's just sort of ignore that those things exist in favor of being in solidarity. But, and this is a very important point, there's like a lot of evidence that suggests that solidarity work actually erodes bigotry. That solidarity work is actually effective at, at fighting these things, right? So there's kind of like two different ways of approaching this. There's probably more than two, but like just for the sake of argument. One is to like 
always be sort of like focusing on and naming these these systems of oppression and the and these identities and these differences between and thinking that that's going to lead to their erosion by sort of constantly pointing them out and, and focusing on them. The other is to do solidarity work. And when we do solidarity work, what that is, it is saying that, yes, we're different. We are not the same, but we have a lot in common, right? And we have shared goals. And when we work together towards our shared goals, we also are in a situation where now we're in relationship with each other. And so, you know, stereotypes and bigotry, that is, that is putting a two-dimensional caricature in place of a human being, right? It is hard to stay in stereotypes and bigotry when you fucking know the person, right? And so this is why, like, one of my favorite magazines, um, Jacobin, which is a socialist magazine, magazine out of the United States, they have a YouTube channel and they did this great episode about how unions are actually very effective at eroding racism. Much more effective than anti-racism trainings. Like, Weird. Like, literally. Because these like, these, like, diversity and inclusion trainings you know, first of all, are very often being like enforced upon you by your boss, which is like threatening and weird. And everyone hates that. Right. It's also like making you like weirdly suspicious of your colleagues and like stuff that's happening during work time. It's weird. But also it's making people being anxious and like hyper focused on this stuff and thinking so much about their differences and being anxious and having anxiety. Whereas the other one is being like, actually, we have a common goal. We have a common fucking enemy. And it's not us. It's the people who are fucking taking what is all of ours, you know? And that creates real relationships and that erodes bigotry. Okay, we'll stop ranting in one okay, second. Sorry. About this. Well, we told you, though, we could talk about identity. One, one more thing to say, um, which is, uh, yeah, I wrote an article about this a while ago, but there was like basically like a while ago, there was like a blip in the discourse where like there was a bunch of like lefty ish people saying like, I will never organize with conservatives, you know, and being like, it, you know, I don't want conservatives in my union. And, you know, I was just like. And me and like other people were like, if you have like MAGA idiots in your union, you're fucking winning. Like, like that is that is like a very good outcome. Like that is exactly what you want. And they will have to be around people who are not like them. And they will eventually be like, oh, like they're not like, you know, they're not like Satanists trying to like transmit children or whatever, you know. Like, anyways, I, I gave a a fist bump to a guy with a stash today with a handgun. With a what? With a handgun. I give a fist bump to this guy. Because, and he was like, American flag on his sleeve, you know, like, cap. I was at O'Reilly's Auto Parts. <laughs> and, and he had a handgun, and I was like, hey, dude, what's up? You know, fist bump. Because I've, for, for years I've been saying this is, a, uh, uh, this is a class war disguised as a race war. Like, there's part of me, like, I kind of have this, like, semi- um, uh, like character in me who's a cowboy and there's a huge part of me that just wants to go down south and to drink beer and shoot guns in the forest like yeah, straight yeah. up we can see it right we can see that this is you know a, a class for war disguised as a race war and a lot of people can't because of the media because of the social politics because of the nexus because of your community because of belonging because of our foundational desire to belong to something and because in the united states in, in particular decades of anti-communism have made it so that people are incapable of thinking in terms of class like it's just like simply not on the radar you know I, something i've noticed as as a canadian is that like when basically americans like obviously the race situation in the u.s is like particularly insane and it has been for a long time right so that's like a, a, def, a definite true fact but oftentimes when i hear americans talking about race i'm just like take out the word white okay 
replace it with rich people and then you have the correct analysis of what the fuck is going on you know like like very very often you know um yeah but like americans have just been taught like from like infancy like not to think in terms of class because that's like scary communism stuff and it's just like everything is always replaced by a host of other identitarian categories in order to make it so that people are not thinking about the things that they have in common which are the fact that we're all of how many people in this room have a billion dollars in, in light of offering a little bit of a transition, because we're wrapping up our first halves and preparing for for a little bit of a break, but we have a way to kind of like bring us together. And in the sense that, you know, we can each honor really deeply, like the impact of violence that each of these systems have created along, you know, our relationship lines and in our bodies. Um, and, you know, flow with me on this. Um, but we're also like deep leaning into like, so what do relationships look like that help us stay committed to working with one another when we are activated as fuck because of our history um and because it lives within our bodies and, and follow-up question also like as a person um as a person of color right like my livid experience of this so-called capitalist structure of rates is somatically a real experience that I have mm -hmm. every single day mm -hmm. and like how do I how do we and how do I you know move through the world in a way where solidarity is the foundation while also my experience walking into the grocery store alone compared to with a white friend or down the street or in the neighborhood that I live in you know like it's so different than if I'm walking you know like how do we reckon with um, with the lived experience of these capitalist, like nuanced structure, psychological, physiological structures that have landed in our bodies. Also, just to name that, I mean, especially in America, rich people um, very often does equate to white people, like because of the foundation of this country. But I think like we you can't see how much money is in someone's bank account when you look at them like I can't look at a person on the street and be like oh that's a billionaire like sometimes they're telltale signs but uh you know they're like driving a yacht or like whatever you know I'm like that's a fucking billionaire but like <laughs> they're not always driving their yacht but like what we can see is what we judge people with right and so we're like okay a lot of the billionaires are white and there's a reason for that because capitalism and racism intersect they go hand in hand and it's not it's not whiteness um i like whiteness is the top right and it is and it is related and it is like it's easy that's easy for people to comprehend and it's also easy for like the rich people to be sitting up in their little like what do you call them penthouses and be like saying to other white people like yeah you could be a part of this you could be a part of this you know and that like keeps people divided i think what like what you're pointing to is like a really important like piece of the way that capitalism uses race and racism right and how it has historically done this and continues to do it and so what poor white people are encouraged to believe in a racist society is that they, too, could be billionaires. But it's like, no, you actually can't. 
be a billionaire. You're not going to be a billionaire. There is nothing in your life. And just being born white is certainly not going to make you a billionaire if you're somebody who's living in poverty. Right. And so, like, I think as as socialists, what we need to be doing is we need to be showing people we need to be breaking that myth and showing people that who, what you, who you are in common with is other people who cross racially are being fucked over by capitalism. Right. And because like, because 100% of ruling class people are in the ruling class, but 1% of white people are in the ruling class. You know? And so all of those people are actually in an amazing like position to enter into a relationship of solidarity with other people being oppressed by capitalism, right? And so we need to break this mythology in which racism is used to it's it's scapegoating. Like it's literally you know, teaching like poor white people to blame and to project on racialized people so that they do not see that the people who are actually fucking them over are capitalists, right? And so I really think that that is important political work. And I also just wanted to say something about what you were saying, Aliko, because I also understand that as people are unlearning that and are doing that work of being like, oh, shit, like I'm totally being tricked by capitalism into like hating my fellow workers, that for people who are experiencing racism or other forms of that kind of bigotry, you're you're like, OK, well, can you just stop? It's a, it's like not great, man. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and so and, and like and that's very fucking real too and it's like it is true that that process it's not going to happen immediately and that process of having to be like okay but you're still being fucking weird you know it it sucks you know and like we have to be honest about that and it sucks on a range like it sucks from it being annoying to it being traumatizing right and like i you know i feel like there's there's a piece of this that intersects with the conversation about trauma and like i just i want to see if i can just articulate this because I feel like I had my own kind of journey about this stuff with gender because for me, because I had been so severely traumatized by men over and over and over again in my life for years, I could not have a relationship with a man. Like I literally always thought that men wanted to like sexually assault me, you know? And so all my relationships with men were based in fear, suspicion and trauma, you know? And I some of that was based in reality because like I had been sexually assaulted by men many, many times in my life. And because a lot of men who who did not want to sexually assault me were being like weirdly sexist and doing stuff that wasn't cool. And I was picking up on it and I was completing it with my trauma of like really severe shit. And I was feeling very fucking uncomfortable, you know. But through my process of trauma recovery and that discernment stuff that I was talking about at the beginning and starting to parse out like what is the trauma stuff from these very severe things that happened to me? what is annoying sexism that is not actually traumatizing but is just annoying and also what is literally there's nothing going on but I'm just perceiving that right and as I started to be able to parse that out through the therapy that I was able to access I had this moment where like and it was only a couple years ago where I was literally like taking driving instructions from this dude who I met on Kijiji and he was just like a random middle-aged man who was teaching me how to drive and I suddenly realized that I liked him and I liked hanging out with him and I was having a nice time and I wasn't scared and I wasn't stressed out and it was actually like fun and enjoyable and I wasn't feeling that way, right? And like there were things that he was doing for sure. He wasn't being a creep. He wasn't making weird sexual comments towards me like, you know, but also I had done enough work in myself to be able to to offer him the grace of not assuming the worst because I had had those prior experiences. 
right? And so I think sometimes that is the complicated and hard work that people who have experienced like really fucked up shit along the lines of identity unfortunately have to do as we're doing this transition, right? Um, and and like it, there's work to be done on both sides. And I'm not saying that it's fair that we have to do that work because it sucks, you know? But I also think that it's necessary as we move towards solidarity to start doing that work. And it also, it's freeing because it's like, me not feeling like I have to have that level of fear about every man is freeing because it allows me to have way more relationships, to have way more solidarity, to have way more peace in my life, right? And it ha- it helps me to have better discernment about dudes who actually are being fucking creepy and I don't want to be around it, right? Yeah, yeah. take like, like the response um, from Lux and Morgan and then we'll start to wrap up this section. Yeah, one thing that I really appreciate like is what you said about the way that when we're in solidarity with each other, we are actually healing some of those like bigotries. Um, And I also think it's important to like even think of how can we be in solidarity against those bigotries themselves? Because I think like, yeah, there's time the way that we respond when we're like, oh, pointing out and hyper focusing on, you know, way racism or white supremacy culture is showing up is we feel like, oh, no, now I'm bad and wrong. And I'm also, you know, I think it's both in the way that we talk about it, but also how we think about it is like, how can we understand that we're all trying to work this out of our collective system together and we're like helping each other see blind spots. Like it's not like a you are bad and wrong. It's just like, hey, you missed a you missed a spot, you know, <laughs> like um, and like or I felt this way. And I think like it's really in relationships where we heal those things, too, because it's not just when I'm saying, hey, I felt this way when you did that, it lands very differently than it's wrong that you did that. Like, it's wrong that you, like, um, crossed the street, uh, you know, it while I was walking by and that feels like a microaggression. It's like, if we know each other, I can be like, hey, man, what's that? Like, you know, like, we can understand, like, oh, that impacts a real human who I care about and not, like, I'm, t- like, c- collecting a list of, like, the good and bad things to do as a white person. But I'm learning through relationship, like, And I think, uh, you know, one way that we see this that I think is really potent to see this is with undoing ableism. Like there's such particular different needs that people have. And so it's about like meeting the needs of someone who comes into a space as, you know, it's like I think it's amazing if you can do the best to make your workshops like accessible to every kind of disability. But like most likely you're not going to be able to do that, you know. So it's about like someone being like, hey, I want to take your workshop. Can you accommodate me? You know, and then being like, yeah, I can or no, I can't. And being honest about that. And I think that's a big part of it, too, is being like honest about where we can and can't hold each other. Like if, you know, if you're not holding a space that's like queer and trans inclusive, like just be like, this is for cis women. Like, I just feel like we should name that more because when we're not doing that, we're not being honest and we are more likely to be causing harm. And yeah, being in solidarity against racism, I think, is also understanding the way that like, yeah, maybe certain people have materially benefited from whiteness but they are still like spiritually broken and like they're not living like, you know, they are cut off from other people and their humanity, which is if we're all interdependent, like they're cut off from parts of themselves. And that like loss is real for white people too, you know, like we are not benefiting, like even if we're benefiting materially, like this system is like crushing all of our souls and like the jobs that people have, you know, making certain amounts of money, like probably the billionaires don't really do anything, but like a lot of people who are making money like are doing jobs that they don't like, you know, and they're doing it because they think that that's what they're supposed to be doing and that having money is like the life you're supposed to have. But they're not necessarily like living their purpose or having meaningful relationships with people. 
um, spinning with and maybe in like a slightly different direction, um, I wanted to speak to like how do we design the kinds of relationships to do the kind of solidarity work that we're up to? Like how deep do those relationships need to go? How like skilled can they be for us to be able to like work towards these ideals with one another while our bodies are activated as fuck? Um, and somebody I want to bring into the conversation that a handful of us have gotten to be able to study with is a person named Aaron Johnson, who is one of the co-founders of an organization called Holistic Resistance. And they're a BIPOC-founded organization that specializes in doing the embodied trauma work that is necessary to cultivate anti-racist community. Um, and they do that guided by Mother Earth um, and how she uses regeneration to make that possible. Um, and so I just want to like speak to a, a pearl of wisdom that um, he's brought in is that like as we're figuring out how to do solidarity with one another, how to create the opportunity for anti-oppressive relationships, the kind of like deep core commitment to be able to feel our full humanity in our own body and to be able to feel the full humanity of the epigenetic brilliant ancestry in somebody else's body is a kind of relationship that we do not practice with one, an with one another. His comparison is that it is a relationship that is more profound than marriage and marriage like holds like a very short route, right? It's a tap root that has to go way longer than that. Um, so I just want to invite that level of reflection to like the quality of relationships that we're inviting into when we say solidarity. It's a quick word to say, but it's a deep, deep practice to, to work on um, and be willing to be able to deeply respect the survivorship of somebody else's body and like to the fullness of their ancestry in relationship to the fullness of yours and like how do you hold enough space for all of that to beat with one another well one of the things that comes up for me i think is like <clears throat> i have found compassion for everyone i found compassion for white people once i learned what the fuck happened to everyone in middle age europe and the fucking insane level of trauma that marx talks about around primitive accumulation, the taking all the way, the land from the people, the control of women and bodies. I'm reading about it and I'm just like, this is beyond me. This is the trauma that got blown through the rest of the world. And what I see, and this is like so taboo, and I hate that I'm even like one of the only um, black people in here, is like, like, I have found compassion for white folks, but to ask your everyday, and I'm not African-American. I'm first generation. I, I like American, like my parents were born in France and Car the Caribbean. Like I don't even have like the same I identities as a lot of black folks in America. And, to, and it's pain. It's pain that keeps people from having compassion. Right. And I'm going to get, I have my own section about this a little bit later, but how do we even ask people who are so over capacity to have compassion for each other and that's the but that's the that's what i that's the only way it's the only way through and it's just like how do, do how do we even make space for people to go through that pain to have to 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 be able to find the compassion on the other side like it's so complex
Hello. Hello again. Welcome back. Well, we've got more fucking realness to get into. <laughs> so for this next section, I'm going to pass it over to the lovely Lux to kick us off. Thank you. Um, yeah, so just want to start off with like looking at what we're currently doing in responding to harm and why that's not working. Um, and I know that y'all like kind of stray away from using certain words like harm and accountability because of the ways that they've been like misapplied or lost meaning. Um, but I want to, you know, mostly just focus on like harm as what you call like breach of integrity, um, like boundary crossings and um, yeah, understanding if if we know harm is that like actual harm, not just like when people are hurt and they're, you know, misnaming it as harm. Um, but what do we currently do in response to harm, both on an individual level and as a society? And why is it wrong? Um, well, I guess, generally speaking, there is a belief that punishment is an effective way of addressing harm. Um, and we see this, obviously, with jails and the prison system. And we also see this with cancel culture. And basically, I guess the idea is, is that, like, if you if you kind of threaten people with the, their removal from their the human community, you know, that this will be a motivation to not do bad things. I guess that's the logic of punishment. But it isn't effective for a number of reasons. Um, but I think the main one is just that, like, um, we, we just interviewed uh, Sarah Schulman, who wrote the book Conflict is Not Abuse at one of our events. And, like, we were just listening to Conflict is Not Abuse. And she was saying this thing that, like, people do things for reasons, right? And people don't just do things because they're bad. Like, people do things for reasons. And so punishing them, it's like you might scare them to, into not doing it for a bit. But you're also kind of traumatizing them. And so if we understand that people do things for reasons and part of the reason that they're doing things is because of trauma, increasing their trauma is probably going to increase them doing the things that we don't like. Right. Um, and so it's not really an effective means of transforming behavior in the long term. So I think that's like a concise answer. It's fine. Yeah. And like and that's also do you want to talk a little bit about like cancel culture as a form of punishment? Sure. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so basically we we've sort of decided that um, that what we're going to do is that if anybody does things that are bad, we're going to isolate them from everybody. We're going to treat them as if they are uh, contagious. Uh, we're going to subject them to harassment campaigns that are sort of crowdsourced on the Internet. Um, we're going to make it so that it's like uh, not only impossible, but like it's like an added charge if you um, if you defend yourself. Um, we're going to also harass the people who are associated with you and we're going to have this go on indefinitely, um, forever <laughs> and, uh, with like basically no way back. And then we're also going to say that there's such a thing as an accountability process and that that is somehow going to like stop this process, like in its tracks, um, as long as you do it properly. While I think that anybody who's been around the block a couple of times in like social justice world knows that like, well, personally, I've like literally never seen like an accountability process go well. It's almost always like a flaming train wreck uh, where like everybody involved is like extremely unhappy at the end um, and like nothing gets accomplished at all. Um, perhaps sometimes people uh, have had more successful um, um, accountability processes, but like I, I rarely see it, you know. Um, 
there's lots of reasons for that. We could get into it. But anyways, so we've decided that that's how we're going to deal with like basically like all conflict and also harm, like real harm, you know? Um, and, uh, but also it's kind of like random too, because it's like who gets targeted by this stuff? Like it, it isn't like really bad people because lots of like totally normal people gets t get targeted by it. You know, it isn't people of a particular identity group because it happens to all people like, um, you know, it, it's, you know, you can't be saved by being, um, on your best behavior. You can't be saved by your identity. Um, it just kind of happens like randomly. Um, often people are targeted, like literally like just cause they have like less clout than the people who are targeting them. Um, so anyways, that's what we're doing. It like clearly doesn't work. It's like super destructive to individuals, to our ability to organize. It seems very pointless and cruel when you take like one step back, you know? And, uh, yeah, so that's where we're at. Yeah. And that, yeah, as we can tell, like that clearly doesn't work for a number of reasons. It doesn't actually heal the root of the trauma or the need that's not met that is causing behavior that's harmful. So what else could we do? both on an individual level and as a society. Um, so the individual level would be like, yeah, when harm happens with people we know, or as a society, like when harm happens, like on the level of like, yeah, the law and the systems that we have to respond to harm, like what else could we imagine? What else could we do that would actually get to healing those root um, causes of harm? Yeah, so it's a really big question. I will say that right from the beginning, like, so we have an episode of the podcast and it's also in Zine form back there if you guys are interested, where we talk about like this definition of harm that you're using, which is like the idea of um, actually like a, a violation of someone's boundaries in some kind of a way, as opposed to just like hurt feelings. Because in cancel culture, the word gets used in absolutely broad and undefined ways. And very often things are called harm that are not harm. But even when we're using it in this more specific way where we're like, we actually are talking about some kind of a breach of someone's boundaries, I still don't love the word harm because I still feel like it's way too fucking broad and, and, and not specific because it's like, what kind of harm you're talking about is going to give me a, I'm going to answer you differently, right? And so very often to these questions, like I want to talk about abuse because I think that's often what people want to know about. And like, you know, it could be like, there's lots of things where somebody might have like crossed my boundary and that was harmful that are not abusive, right? It's just like, it wasn't great. And like, there's probably like different kinds of like mediation and like conflict resolution that we could do to move past that, right? But then there's like abuse, which is like a very serious boundary violation that includes things like physical and sexual violence and also includes things like degradation, humiliation, um, threatening someone, like doing things that are very overtly like um, scary and threatening and dehumanizing and things like that, right? And we go into a more specific definition of all this stuff um, in that episode and in the zine, but just to be brief. So very often, I think that the conversation about what should we do about abuse gets sort of like all the air in the room gets sucked up by talking about cancel culture. And I find it very annoying because I don't believe that cancel culture is an effective means of addressing abuse, as we were just talking about. First of all, because like traumatizing people who um, have been abusive or just like consistently driving them up from one community to another, taking away their resources. This is not an effective way of helping them to change. But also I'm like, does it help the survivor heal and does it help to create safety within our communities? And like, I don't think it's very effective at that. But I think that cancel culture and more generally the concept of accountability and like accountability processes like 
Jay was talking about. Basically, like they're claiming to do several distinct things all at once. And I think that a more effective strategy would be to pull these threads apart and actually look at them individually so that we can come up with strategies that are effective for the different things that we want to do, right? So some of the things that cancel culture and accountability or accountability processes are claiming to do that are distinct from one another are intervening on violence and trying to create more safety. That's one thing. Another is trying to offer resources for healing for a person who has been traumatized, right? So trying to give people what they need to heal from trauma. Another is trying to give someone who has been abusive what they need to change their behavior or to give them motivation to change their behavior so that they no longer abuse people. And then maybe a fourth would be, how do we facilitate access to community among people who have been abused and people who have been abusive, right? So basically, you could, you could break that down into intervention, healing, responsibility, and boundaries. But we're claiming that this thing, cancel culture or accountability processes, these, this, these types of approaches are sort of dealing with all of that at once. And I don't think that it actually is dealing with those things. And I think that it would be more helpful to have in-depth conversations and learning about these different things and what actually would be useful in those cases, right? So basically, for intervention, there's a huge array of skill sets that most people never learn that would be very fucking helpful for intervention. Some of these are like de-escalation. Like, do you know what to do if you see someone going off on someone else and they look like they're about to assault that person, right? There's a whole fucking body of knowledge about how to approach situations like that to increase safety for everybody involved and to help the person being targeted to leave, right? And this is work that I have done very, very often in my life. I'm very good at it if I do say so myself. And I can do it even though I'm like a five foot tall woman. I know how to de-escalate and end situations in which a dude is literally about to hit his girlfriend. And I've done it many fucking times, right? I also have an eye for noticing when situations are going in that direction and like intervening, right? So I'd love to resource people with those types of uh, knowledge sets, right? Also, if you know someone in, a, in an abusive relationship who is like perhaps not ready to leave yet, another type of intervention is like, how can we as friends and community members who know that abuse is going on, what can we do to help make it safer and more possible for the person to leave the domestic violence situation. Yeah, and I just like, just to add to that real quick, like it's similar to the way that the police don't actually like fight crime, you know? It's like the police show up later to like fuck everything up, like after it's already happened, you know? Um, and and it's like in the same manner, like we when we have this tool cancel culture, like, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And like, basically we just wait around for like bad guys to pop up and then we hit them with cancel culture, you know? Um, and it's just like, okay, but like, where, where is the intervention in the actual like harm that is happening? Right? Like, why are we not very fucking good at that? Because we, we don't tend to be, you know? And like, one reason is that you can't fucking do it on Instagram. Like, like, say it again. Yeah. Like, you know, if someone is like in an abusive relationship, it involves, you know, giving them the keys to your house, like helping them make an exit plan, like helping them like, you know, exit that relationship safely. Uh, you know, there, I mean, there's many steps involved, you know. And actually, for people who know about domestic violence, shit talking the abuser is actually not a good idea. 
It's extremely dangerous. The reason it's not a good idea is because people who are in domestic violence relationships often have complicated relationship feelings towards their abuser that include feelings of love and loyalty, right? And so the person who's being abused feels conflicted. They they love this person. They feel po- possibly very like attached and devoted to this person. They might feel dependent on this person. And so if the people in their life are responding by being like, fuck your partner, your, par- your partner's a piece of shit. Like, how are you with this person? It's very likely that the person is going to withdraw from that relationship and move closer to the abuser and stop talking about what is happening, right? So it's not an effective tool. It's not, it's not literate to what domestic violence survivors actually fucking need, which is like more fucking compassion and understanding for the complexity of what it's like to be abused by someone that you love. Yeah. And then like, we could we could definitely rant about this for like a million Forever. years. Forever, um, yes. But just to sort of quickly touch on the second part of your question, um, like what can we do on a more like broad level, you know, because I love to drag things back to the societal level and be like, what what kind of policy goals could we have? Because like, honestly, we're so unused to thinking about policy goals because the left is so fucking like toothless. But it's like, but like one of the reasons why we're so toothless is that we're unable to think about policy goals, you know, but it's like, what are the conditions that produce violence? Right. And how do we transform them? Um, and that involves either taking power or influencing power in, in a very material and direct way. Right. And that is something that we need to be thinking about as the left. Like we can't do all of this on an interpersonal level. It doesn't fucking make sense. It's like having like a boat that has like a fucking giant hole in it and you're just like bailing it out with your hands, you know? Like you need to like fix that problem, you know? And we know what kinds of conditions are more likely to produce violence and what kind of conditions are less likely to produce violence. Like we can look at different countries around the world. We can look at the kind of social circumstances that people live under. We know that things like having, you know, um, for example, if you... Uh, want to make it so that women are less likely to be in abusive relationships that they can't leave. What you want to do is make it so that everyone has access to housing so that they can always leave an abusive relationship. You want to make sure that they have access to transit so that they're not dependent on someone's car. You know, they're like, they want, you want to make sure that people have access to money so that they're not dependent on someone's income, right? There are many ways. Childcare. Childcare should be free. Exactly. You know, and there are many ways that you can make it so that the conditions that trap people in these relationships don't exist, you know? Um, and I mean, that, that goes for like abusive relationships, but it also goes for like a a lot of different things where, um, and it even touches on something you were talking about before. Sorry, I said this was going to be quick. It's not quick. I'm sorry. Um, but you were, you, before you were talking about sort of like, how do we deal with the fact that like, you know, like racism still exists, you know, like it's like very like real and and tangible and like hurts people in these direct ways. And we want to be able to cope with that. Right. Um, and the, you know, we can think about it on an interpersonal level, but also we can think about on a policy level and it's like. Uh, for with the example of racism or other forms of bigotry, you know, but like racism in particular, because people often say this, like people say that racism is power plus prejudice, right? Like this is like a common definition that people use. Um, so what we often do is we focus on the prejudice, but prejudice is very difficult to change in people. Like people often like you can change it and like solidarity work is, is one of the ways that you can change it, but it's very difficult to change in people, especially when it's very ingrained. But what you can change is the difference in the power levels between different people, you know, and if you are able to identify groups of people that are disempowered in particular material ways, you can reverse that through policy decisions and make it so that some person being prejudiced towards you means nothing because your job is secure, your housing is secure, like you have everything you need, you are not, you're not subject to that person having power over you anymore, right? And like that goes for like all sorts of different identity groups, but that's one of the dreams of socialism is to make it so that someone's prejudices cannot impact you. Like, so that it would be like someone calling me a cracker. It doesn't fucking mean anything. 
So like I'm circling back to something that, you know, fully hear you that we need to be able to make change on every single level and all of them are required to make this even possible. And also we're the ones that are going to be writing that policy with each other. And how do we stay biologically regulated with one another to be able to do that level of collaboration comes through me all the time. And so there's just like two um, body trends that I wanted to like mention that I see in these like collaborations when we're trying to do the solutionary work with one another um, is that when we get heightened with a spurt of adrenaline, it can take 20 to 40 minutes for it to subside in our body. If we stop receiving the stimulus that agitated us, if we stop receiving the stimulus that agitated us, how quickly do you respond to emails, to text messages, to Instagram posts? 20 to 40 minutes, y'all. So there's that. And then also there's a natural like traumatic grief cycle that happens when we learn about shit. So when we're coming to awareness around the like actual carnage of the systems of oppression that we coexist amongst, it takes about two years for our body to actually regulate around being able to even navigate those truths and relationships. And now a lot of us learn it. We get super stoked. We get super on fire. And we start to see that we're supposed to be the teachers of this shit. And we are, but we're supposed to do so with being held by people who have been doing it much longer. So like, I just want to like plant those things with us on like ways we can think about pacing to do this well with each other. We can't extricate ourselves out of these bodies, but we can work well with them um, to be able to do this kind of like keeping our full brains on and not being like rocked by our amygdala all the time. That really answers the question of like, how do we do this? Like, how do we slow down enough to do this? Pace of our bodies. Yeah. And one thing I think about is like, like what you were saying about how we, you know, when we hear someone's being abusive, like we just want to call out that behavior as wrong. And like, you know, like we're angry for that person. We want to go hold hold that person accountable. Right. But like um, I think what you're getting at when you say like, I don't believe in accountability processes or you haven't seen them going well is like they have to be consensual and you can't force someone to be accountable. And change in behavior is a thing that takes fucking time. And we want it to happen right away. And like, I've experienced this in relationship with people where I'm like, why don't you just change your behavior, you know? And and even once we know it's happening, like that doesn't change it. Like we have to, like it could take years for someone who is even, even if they're able to hear like you've been abusing this person and like they're able to like get, a, you know, facts and be like, look at the facts and like see themselves and not like blow up you know like if they're able to like be aware of that that doesn't mean they're not gonna do that in their next relationship and so like what do we do to you know like in that situ in a situation of abuse like harm reduction is the first step like any harm happening like harm reduction like stopping the stimulus you know like that is the first step and the other steps that you're talking like that about like responsibility and healing like are like longer timelines and that's something that I think we really don't like understand and that in order to heal together, like we need to understand how psycho how our psychology works and where the roots of harm are. And more people need to be empowered in these skills beyond like we don't I believe like, you know, yeah, paying for therapy is amazing and it does take time to like develop like a lot of, you know, these skills, but also we need to be like holding that kind of space for each other to grow and heal and like build like circles of you know resilient relationships where we're co-learning around like where our attachment wounding might and like create abusive behaviors or like you know aa circles around like more than just 
addiction, like where it's we're healing together these patterns that have come through like how our psychology works. Like if you're not touched enough as a kid, you know, like you're going to disconnect from relationships and like how you affect other people might not register in your body because like you have like disconnected from relationship because it wasn't safe to reach for connection that wasn't available. And like these are chronic issues. And that I think another thing is like we need to attend to parents more like educate parents because these like you can just fucking have a kid and like not that you should need a license like that'd be a little weird but like I I do feel like like parenting needs to be supported by society way more than it is like you don't you know right now you have to like buy or seek out those resources like they should be like like very thoroughly available to folks who are becoming parents to know how to like meet a baby's needs like which is really fucking important to how they're going to grow up and treat people um i just want to jump on to one of the things that you said about the healing and the responsibility being long timelines another important piece is that they are not the same timeline and this is one of the mistakes that the accountability framework makes because what it wants is for all of this to happen in a neat little package in which the survivor and the person who was abusive are both on the same timeline and the person gets to be responsible and the person gets to heal simultaneously. And this is like a nice dream, I guess, but it's not fucking realistic. And I find it to be disempowering and unhelpful on both sides. And so part of the reason for this is that you can't control how long shit is going to take, right? Because there's many, many factors. And so say you have two people, one was abused by the other, right? And they're both on a process. The one is trying to recover from the trauma of being abused. The other one is trying to figure out what the fuck happened. Why was I abusive? What previous traumas led to this? What factors in my life led to this? But in this scenario, you could have it going either way. Like you could actually have a situation where the survivor is like way more ready to heal and is actually being told by accountability culture, cancel culture shit, that their healing is actually like somehow connected to or dependent upon the person who abused them being responsible. And this is a disempowering narrative for survivors because the thing is, is that the people who abused us may never be responsible, right? Or it might take them a really fucking long time. And so am I supposed to hold my breath? You know, and especially as like a survivor of child abuse, I find this to be a fucking disempowering narrative because what am I going to do? Hold an accountability process for my fucking parents? Like, no, I'm not, you know? And so... It's like very frustrating. And a lot of what the healing process has been for me is to realize that I am sovereign. I am separate. I am not dependent upon them. And in fact, that was the myth of abuse that made me believe that my existence was dependent upon what they fucking did. Right. And unfortunately, cancel culture and accountability stuff is like reinforcing that narrative and making survivors believe that their healing is out of reach until the person who abused them is able to be responsible. That's a disempowering narrative for survivors. You can heal and recover even if the person who abuses you, who abused you never did. Right. They, if they never fucking heal, you still can. And then on the flip side of this, another scenario can happen. Has changed thoroughly and completely has tried their best to make amends and, and wants to move on with their life. And unfortunately, the person who was abused has not healed and wants to hold that person hostage to that. And that isn't fair either because it doesn't allow people to move on, right? And so the idea that like accountability has only happened when the survivor feels healed, unfortunately, is not true. 
Like the person could have done everything that needed to be done in order to take responsibility for what they did. And unfortunately, the survivor may not be healed. And so that is more of a collective question about what does this survivor need that they're not getting, right? And what can we as a culture and a community and a society and the stuff Jay was saying about like resources, you know, what can we give this survivor to help them fucking heal from whatever trauma they have that perhaps the person who abused them can't actually give them, right? So that is another reason why I don't like those things being conflated because it's they're different timelines. Yeah. And one thing I just want to bring in is like, as someone who has like, you know, taken trainings on like restorative justice and like transformative justice and is in that like more American context of like, you know, which comes from both indigenous and a lot of like black feminists doing this amazing work of like respond asking these same questions, like how do we respond to harm and abuse in our communities? Um, I do think there's people doing accountability that know these things that aren't trying to make the timeline the same, that aren't trying to force accountability that are, you know, if someone's willing to be to have support, because that's also like why there can what an accountability, maybe not process, but like group can look like is like the close people who know and believe in this person who are like, you know, your grandma or like that teacher that like supported you that, you know, see the best in you coming together to be like, hey, we want to help lift up the best in you and help you heal and help you become like a healthier and more loving like version of yourself that we know and we see in you. And so there is like that possibility of like people circling around accountability. And that looks like support, which is also hard for people to wrap their fucking heads around that like person causing harm also needs to be supported, right? Like you don't heal in isolation. Like you need to be supported in order to access that healing so that you're not going to continue harming other people. Yeah, totally. I mean, like the people who came up with like the transformative justice like concept, you know, it was like it's it was like, you know, to try to like get like youth in like the South Side or Chicago out of gangs and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It's like it's it was like a really like different context from the way that it's often used now, like with really different people. Um, and like, you know, in, in, I, I, I just. Yeah, I often think about how, like, it's exactly what you were just saying. Like, it involved, like, resourcing someone, you know, often with, like, pastors and, like, you know, people from their, like, actual community, like, the real community, not just, like, people with the same haircut as you. Um, and Again with the call-out culture, man. <laughs> and, like, you know, s surrounding that person with support. And it's like, yeah, you know, I was complaining about how I think, like, accountability processes, like, really work, blah, 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 blah. But I'm also, like, I have seen people transform, like, literally, like, hundreds of times in 12-step programs, right? Which are, like, a, a very fucking different because it's, like, like, I made this joke yesterday, but it's a good joke. But, like, yeah, like, when you when you walk into an AA meeting, like, basically the more fucked up you are, the more people are, like, please come back. Because, <laughs> you know, like, because they're, like, you definitely need to be here, you know? And they, they want to give you resources, you know? They want you to come back. They want you to call them. They're, like, please take my phone number. Call me whatever you want um, because you're real fucking crazy. And, like... And they mean it, too. It's completely sincere, which is very, like, jarring when you first go into an AA meeting because there's all these, like, nice people, like, trying to give you their phone number. And you're, like, you know, you're, like, really unused to people being nice to you. Um, but they're completely sincere. And, uh, yeah, so it's this process of taking, like, very, like, fucked up people and just being, like, literally what do you need and we're going to give it to you so that you can transform over time, you know? And it's, like, basically the exact opposite of, of cancel culture, which is, like, we're going to pretend you don't exist collectively. And it's not fucking happening on Instagram. Also that.
I want to just offer one quote on this topic and then pass it to Aliko for this last section. Um, yeah, I was. there's this book called Restoring the Kinship Worldview that is amazing. It's written um, by two indigenous authors and then um, they bring in like quotes from different indigenous people. And this is on a section of conflict resolution as a return to community and offers a different perspective on how we can see the role of perpetrators in the context of a greater community or society. Um, and this is by Wanda D. McCaslin, who is Metis uh, from Ontario area. Indigenous people tend to interpret harmful actions less individualistically and more as signs of imbalances within the community as a whole. Imbalances that affect everyone. In this sense, offenders help the community by drawing attention to imbalance. Instead of placing all the blame on the offender, our traditions acknowledge that everyone in the community has played some role in the patterns that culminated in hurtful actions. The responsibility for harms is distributed and shared. Restoring the kinship worldview. It's amazing. I also quote it all the time. It's like 28 nuances about life, topics of life, and the indigenous perspective on each one of them. Th thank you. Like, this is all super real, and I think I'll bring some personal narrative into this. Um, I have canceled people for making mistakes. Um, I really tor torn some people apart. And this is not some public, like, responsibility. Thing. No, no, no. We're, we've made amends. Like, we're homies. Now we cuddle again. Like, it's good. Um, and it was real hard. It blew up our entire community. Like, blew it the buck up. And I've also been canceled, minorly canceled. It was a group of like 20 people, but the pain was so bad. It was so painful. I left the country. Like, and I was like, holy shit, I did this to someone. And, and that was an access to making amends is like the karma to experience it myself. Um, I was never like necessarily abusive, but I did cross boundaries. And this last, and it happened in one relationship, but then again in, in another relationship. And the last time it happened, it triggered my two deepest wounds, um, abandonment and not being chosen. Uh, my ex kind of like le left and she was with another dude. Anyway, anyway, but the challenge for me was like to choose myself when I wasn't being chosen and to not abandon myself when I was being abandoned. And this, this shock to the system of like, of, to my nervous system, really set me on like a wild consciousness expanding evolution where I was able to heal, where I would, or integrate. I don't even like to use the word heal, um, Teal Swan again. Um, she says, when you think you need to heal something, you already have an air of disapproval for that thing. It's about integration for me. So essentially, I've been able to integrate so much, like where I'm able to see myself, like my challenge for people is to find yourself in each other, where I'm able to see myself in every, almost every, pretty much every single person, like, like as a reflections of each other. If there's a 0.1 difference in DNA between every single one of us, we are not who we are or like what we look like or are reflections of each other. So like, how do we find ourselves in each other to that extent? And 
for me, I had the privilege, privilege to have the community to hold me in my pain, uh, to be able to heal from, from, from being harmed by like childhood trauma, but also then perpetuating that harm and crossing those boundaries. Right. And what happened was I put my life back in myself. Like I think a, a, a nuanced piece to this is like capitalism and romantic capitalism teaches us to put our lives in other people. So when we're not getting our needs met, we're like pu pushing those boundaries, right? We're trying to get those needs met. But it was about putting my life back into myself and back into community to meet those needs. And I want to touch on, again, like this pain piece. Um, I couldn't see myself in another person, the, even my worst enemy when I was in pain. I couldn't see myself in another person, even someone I loved when I was in pain. And I, I really do believe that it's when we unwind that pain, we can find compassion for other people. And I had the privilege to do that. I like had the privilege to like go to grief ceremony and do ayahuasca and dance and yell in the woods and gold plunge. Like I, on the regular. And it's, it's doesn't, not everybody has access to the tools to even heal, right? So that we can see ourselves in one another. And I guess to circle back around to the question where before left leaving off break, like how, how do we find ourselves in each other again? And how do we make space for people to be, go through pain to find compassion? And um, and also I want to bring in this essence of spirit. Like spirit has been such a huge part of this journey for me. And it gets kind of not forgotten in social justice relationships, but or in, in social in the nexus, but like these these are Buddhist teachings to see yourself in one another. Like it's ancient. Like where is the space for spirit? And like how do we make space for people to go through pain? And how do we like ask, not even ask, like, how do we support the pain in people so that we can find these, ourselves in each other again? Okay, I have, I got lots of thoughts about this. Clementine and I have talked a bunch about basically, like, we call it, like, why socialists need God. Um, and, like, it's, like, it's not necessarily, like, God that anybody needs, you know, we're not, like, you need Jesus. But, like, um, we're, like, we are interested in this question of, like, how to cope with these kind of, like, more spiritual questions about life, which... No matter, like, we could create the most, like, perfect utopian economy and, like, there would still be grief, right? There would still be heartache. There would still be, um, you know, abandonment and, like, you know, just accidents, right? Like, tragedy. Like, you're, 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 like, a car goes off a cliff and somebody dies and, like, it, it hurts you. Even if you live in, like, super-duper space communism, right? Like, it's, it's still going to hurt you. And so, like, the question is, like, how, how do we, like, deal with this, like, emotionally, you know? And, you know, Marxism doesn't offer us that much, although there, there's, like, some very interesting um, socialist, like, perspectives on this, for sure. Um, so I think that, like, yeah, the, the question of, like, what do we do with, with spirit in, in socialism or in, in the left is, is a really interesting question. Um, but I have something else that I want to try to get into for a second, too, which is that capitalism, as usual, is the culprit. Um, and what I mean by that is that something that capitalism does is that it takes all human relationships and it um, forces them into a market mode, right? And what that means is that like we end up um, like 
more and more of our lives, of our relationships and of our relationships with each other, but also with the world and with our labor and everything become mediated by the market. So they're bought and they're sold. Right. Um, and this, and, and this is reaching like a fever pitch in the current like era of like late stage neoliberalism where, you know, our like dating relationships are thoroughly quantified. Right. Um, like everything is quantified, like to the highest extent possible. And this is most advanced in the places that have been under capitalism the longest, which is like Europe and North America. And as a result, people feel completely alienated and they feel very, very cut off from one another and from the world, from the land, um, from the product of their labor. And it's this like deep isolating individualism and individuality, um, which is not like a function of some sort of like racial essence or something like that. It's a function of capitalism. Um, all traditional societies were collective to some degree or another. Um, capitalism destroys that. But there's something else that capitalism does when it when it pushes things into a market relationship, it destroys the authenticity that is within them. And a lot of people, when you ask them to define authenticity, they'll say something that's authentic is something that can't really be bought and sold. Like when you really get down to it, you know, it's like if you like have ever like gone on a vacation and there's like, you know, like people doing like stuff for tourists, you know, you're sort of like, well, this isn't very authentic. And the reason why you think it isn't authentic is they're trying to sell it to you. That's why it doesn't feel authentic. And so when more and more of our lives are colonized by the market, like we start to feel this deep like sense that there is nothing authentic anymore. And that hole in our spirits cannot be filled by more capitalism. You know, it, it never can be like, we can kind of have like a simulation of it, like in capitalism. And a lot of our like media, for example, is like a simulation of things that might make us feel a little bit better. We watch movies about it to feel better. You know, we might listen to a podcast about it to feel better. Um, but that is not going to fill the gap. And the thing that can fill the gap on an individual level is some sort of like spirituality, but on a social level, it is um, dismantling capitalism and moving on to the next stage of our economic development as a species. Um, and and to, to be a socialist is to say that we need to move to the next stage of economic de development. To be a fascist is to say that we have to move to the previous one. And to be a conservative or a liberal is to say that we have to stay in the one that we're in now. Um, and so if we want to, if we want to arrest that process of everything being turned into an alienated, commodified and inauthentic experience, we need to be serious about dismantling capitalism. And that's a huge question. That is a very, very difficult thing to do. It's not something that's easy. It's not something that we in this room can accomplish together. Like, you know, there's, there's like 50 of us or something, you know, but like, but we need to be building up a left that is powerful enough and that is goal oriented enough to start doing this, you know? And anyways, like this is what we're trying to do. Like, um, on fucking canceled, you know, we're just trying to like analyze why the left is currently like completely incapable of even like setting our, our sights on this, you know? Um, and because it's a huge fucking problem and it's like, it's contributing to the hurt that we're all sort of feeling on this like deep and subconscious level. There's so much good shit. So much good shit. Um, this bringing up the conversation of like how do we reckon with our pain um, of the fractured systems of the very well-designed divisive systems that have caused the fuckery that we're in like um one of the folks that are bringing that conversations around the united states is a, a person named resma menicum who's the author of my grandmother's hands and speaks to clean pain and dirty pain um and so it is undeniable that we have all participated in either being protected by systems of harm and thus we have participated in pain unknowingly or knowingly or you've been subjugated to pain. 
And a lot of times, like, we're not necessarily well-equipped with robust enough nervous systems to be able to handle pain cleanly. So it stays stagnant in our bodies. And, like, the way that Resmamenicum talks about it is that we then, like, blow it back onto other people's bodies or blow it through other people's bodies. Um, and so this, like, conversation of how do we be compassionate with our pain comes back to, like, a lot of us don't want to walk through the world thinking that we could ever cause harm. It fucking hurts to, like, get to that place to be like, yo, I could fuck up. I could ruin somebody's life. I could say something that would sever a relationship. I could lose housing because of something that I do. Like, I could cause pain by my actions. But we have to get to the place where we can reckon, like, yo, I carry an ancestry that caused a wild amount of pain and benefited from it. And, like, how do we then recognize, like, the ways that we are, we do have the potential to do it. And when we get compassionate enough to know that we can have the potential to cause harm, then we're going to look for ways to prevent harm and to protect each other. But if we keep staying in denial, ooh, it's, it's going to be wild. Totally. I, part of that, part of part of my last 16 months was just realizing like I'm the devil and I am God and there's, and I'm the devil. And from that place, like it's, it's like you're holding all of life from that place. You're really holding all of life from that place. And we, in each moment, it's a choice, you know, and it's, and it's like a self-regulation as well, right? Of like any moment to moment awareness of self-regulation in order to choose. And like when I do, when I am the devil or if I do like, like my communication's fucked up or like, ah, oh, shit, I could have done that. You know what I mean? Like it's easy to take responsibility for your shadow when you know you can have a shadow. One of the things that I love about the word compassion um, is that it actually means to suffer with And I think that's really powerful, especially to what you uh, have shared, Aliko, around, you know, I am able to have compassion for other people because I feel my pain. Um, pain is a fact of existence on this planet. Like, life is painful. It's also wonderful and beautiful and lots of other things, but we can't actually escape pain. Uh, we try to a lot. Um, and another thing that came up, you know, in this conversation connected to how, how capitalism is connected to this is the way that like capitalism has commodified healing as well as this like healing feels good. Healing is about, you know, like being whole and, and feeling better and like sometimes healing hurts a lot of the time, actually. And um, it is also messy and it is also painful. And we don't know how to hold space for that. And we also, the way that we talk about healing, too, is like go over in the corner there and do your healing and then come back and then we'll, we'll all be okay, right? But that's also not how fucking healing works. We have to heal in community, which means we have to be able to feel our pain together because a lot of our pain is shared pain. It's not actually, my pain is not actually different from your pain. It might express itself differently, but um, so much of the root of it is is all really connected. And I think also like when we talk about, you know, bringing spirit into this conversation, you know, with no kind of, you know, dogma whatsoever, like everyone, should be able to decide for themselves like what spirituality means to me it's about being connected to something that is larger than myself 
Um, and, you know, for some people that's God, for some people that's nature, for some people that's other humans, that's perfectly valid too. Um, but having this understanding of how deeply connected we all are is the only way for us to move through this. And that connects back to solidarity too, right? Is my pain is not separate from your pain. And I have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge that, hold that pain together. And there's actually a lot of like joy and potentiality in holding that pain and that grief together too. There's a lot for us to move through. And the, I also feel this very strongly is like the, you know, if the depth of your pain is way down here, the possibility of your joy is like can be way up here too. So our pain is fucking deep. And our like our, our access to joy can be just as great. But it can't be at the expense of the other. Yeah, I just want to echo a piece of what you just shared back that like I feel like ties back to Aliko's question around like, you know, how do we you know, we can't force someone to have compassion and it's not helpful if they haven't had compassion for themselves first and their own pain to try to tell them to have compassion for someone else, especially if it's the person who caused their pain or like, you know, a person who represents the system that's caused their pain. Um, and so I think it's just important, you know, to recognize that like compassion starts with compassion for ourselves. And one way that we have compassion for ourselves is like by cultivating a sense of connectedness to something bigger, right? That can hold both our pain and our presence with our pain. Um, that like parts work, you know, is one way that we do this is like, you know, we feel like there's a part of me that is like so feels so small and like worthless right now. And there's me right? There's a part of me that feels this and there's me. And that idea, like, you know, from Dick Schwartz, like, um, that we have this deeper, this bigger self is a spiritual idea. It's like you have this connected, like, clear, compassionate, bigger self that can hold, like, also all these, like, other smaller parts or, like, hurt parts of yourself. And, um, and sometimes we can be that for each other, you know, if, like, I don't have access to that, like, you can be that for me. Um, so that is, like, one thing to like bring into this like question is like if someone isn't able to hold your compassion like how can you hold compassion for them or what resources can they access to have that self-compassion totally one thing that's cool about all this is that like um there's you know people have been thinking about these questions for like literally forever since right the start since we started like being able to think about things but like um you know th there are there are certain like you know pretty straightforward material things that people can do to start, you know, to, to get on that path towards like being able to, to work on their compassion for other people and stuff. You know, I think we like, I hate to like bring 12 steps into this over and over again, but I think it's relevant is that like 12 steps, you know, it's like these, these groups made up of people who are like literally just like a bunch of drunks. They don't have special training. Um, uh, if you've seen like movies of like AA meetings where there's like a therapist with a clipboard, like there's never a therapist with a clipboard. It's, <laughs> it's literally just drunks, you know? Um, and and, you know, they're just running it together and, and like what they have, like, because, okay. And I, I should say like many of these people are literally still really fucked up. They're not like, 
they're not like healed yet you know what i mean like it's just like really like wacky fucking people with like lots of problems you know so it's like expecting them all to have compassion for one another may be a bit of a long stretch in fact it is definitely a long stretch because they're fucking messy people you know but what they do have is a common purpose right and a very clearly articulated common purpose which is to help alcoholics recover from alcoholism this is one one point you know um, and so since they have that common purpose, they're able to sit in these rooms over and over again and like through a process of like having it hammered into their drunk little brains um, that like they have things in common with other people, they're able to start working on that compassion in a, in a, in a material way, you know, which I think is, is awesome. And like we were mentioning earlier, like unions too is like another example of like a, a way like labor organizing is a way that people can like identify common goals that they have with other people who they might not even like, you know. Um, who they might not get along with, they might have bigotries towards them, but they've been able to identify a common interest and then work towards that with that person, you know, which starts to erode the kinds of, you know, prejudices and so forth that would um, restrict from what, someone from from acting on their compassion. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'll just add a small piece and I know we're moving into Q&A after this. So start thinking of any questions you might have. Um, but yeah, I think the important part of that, though, is like we need to learn how to collaborate. Because we don't really know how to collaborate well because we rely on hierarchy to make decisions for us. And we don't know how to do like shared decision making and like integrate input and like integrate dissent and, you know, find strategies that like meet common needs. And it can be when we have a specific goal, it's like sometimes more clear. But a lot of like organizing involves like figuring out together, like what kind of strategies do we want to implement to like achieve a certain goal and like people are going to have a bunch of different ideas and that you know there's a lot of tools out there for like how we facilitate those processes in ways that are inclusive because if we're not doing that we are going to replicate the like power structures and um you know whose voice feels like more entitled to take up more space or who you know feels like their opinion is like more developed or matters more um is socially construed and like it's not just based on identity, you know, it's like based on personal power, based on role power, like there's many layers of power happening. But if we're not actively studying how do we create shared power in collaboration, like that fuckery is going to come up when we try and work together and unionize as well. So I just want to like bring that piece in. It's like we have to unlearn and relearn like how to like work together well across all kinds of difference. Take us home, Clementine. I'm just pondering on all of this, and I guess the only piece that that I want to pull out is kindness. Um, to me, I think kindness is the practice of being like, because it's it's sort of like a circular thing where it's like when you're feeling well, you're more able to be kind, you know. Um, and when you're kind to others, they are feeling more well, and so they are more able to be kind. And like we're not always able to be kind like I can I know for myself when I'm like really fucking stressed out I'm more likely to be rushing past people and being inconsiderate and not being my best self but when I'm feeling good um I'm more able to be kind and that has like a ripple effect you know and there's been times where I have been fucking stressed out and frazzled and not being my kindest self and somebody has been kind to me and it's like super fucking regulating you know and so in this like very simple way, I think that kindness is like a condensed spiritual practice of the kind of thing that we're talking about of like, I see you, you know, and and it's like it's not you're not just like a random background character. You're a person. And in this small act of kindness, I am recognizing you and I'm acknowledging that you exist here in this world and that you matter, you know. Um, and so 
I don't know. I think kindness is really fucking important in all of this. And I think some of the most profound stuff that happens in 12-step world is that it is a rigorous practice of kindness towards people who are denied kindness in their day-to-day lives and who are also often not very kind, you know? Um, Because when I came into the program, I was used to people literally like crossing the street to get away from me because I was like crazy, you know? And people being like really freaked out by me. And when I went into the program, people responded very differently. They responded with so much kindness. It was disarming, you know? And that is what I saw in them that they saw something in me that was human and that belonged, you know? Um, and so, I don't know, I think kindness is this, is like the, the little nugget of like spiritual practice that we can bring into our day-to-day lives as much as we can, you know, and we're not always able to. But um, I'm sure many of you have seen the film um, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I just fucking love that movie. And like Wayman, the character Wayman is maybe my favorite character of all time. I'm obsessed with him. And like, he's like, please be kind. And he's like, I'm confused. I know you're probably confused. But like when we're confused, it's important to be kind, you know? And I'm just sort of like, maybe that's the answer to all of it? I don't know. <laughs> just be kind. We solved it. We solved capitalism. Especially if you're confused, you know? Try to be kind. It's like not very cool to be kind, you know, which I think is like a it's like a major stumbling block. But like, to you know. It is. There's a song about it. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. But like, you know. There's there's culture shifting about that. It's punk now. Kindness is in. <laughs> well I hope so. That's that's you know, I hope that that's true. But like in reality, like, you know, it's it's cool to be, like, kind of, like, a jerk to people, you know? I think that's, like, really, like, it's a huge thing, but uh, it's boring also to be a jerk to people, and I recommend against it. You're so right. It's, like, the, the people I do walk by and do smile to and say, hey, what's up? Like, the people I do fist bump who are totally the opposite of me. It is, it is kindness to build social, like, kindness to build this, the social world we want. It really is moment to moment. And I'm like feeling this like very big, profound wave of of that right now. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. My name is Piyush, by the way. Um, So I have a question here. I mean, when we talk about organizing, right, and especially when we talk about organizing around destructive movements, I mean, it just causes more destruction in the world, right? Like dismantling capitalism is not the end. What comes after that, right, that's the thing that inspires me. What inspires me is about, you know, how do we build cultures of richness and harmony? And that's why I really appreciated the comment on solidarity, uh, you know, and, and coming back to that place and focusing on policy building. Right. One of the things I've noticed when we talk about solidarity is that we, especially solidarity, uh, the topics of solidarity comes in building solidarity within, commu- within identities that are marginalized identities, Right. Um, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to actually build solidarity across identities. And I'm not just talking about identities that are marginalized identities and dominant identity, but within marginalized identity. And my question is, how do we, given where we are, you know, we are in this capitalistic, capitalistic system, we have, you know, shortage of time, shortage of space, shortage of, shortage of energy. So how do we build the policies, the frameworks, and the spaces to help do that within identities, across identities, not just within identities? Yeah, super good question. It's a question that doesn't have an easy answer either, you know. 
I think that like one thing that we can do is we can look at um, things that have been successful around the world and and look at like why they were successful, right? Um, I think that there's also a way in which we can go overboard with that. I think that a lot of like Marxist-Leninist types have that issue where they're like, this is like the immortal scientific, like, you know, the immortal science of Marxist-Leninism. And this is like exactly the way that we need to do it because this is what worked in like Bolshevik Russia, right? Um, and it's like, okay, but conditions like change, you know, we're no longer in like the early 1900s and this isn't Russia. Um, and so we need to be thinking like a little bit more broadly perhaps. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't like learn things from, you know, for example, the Bolsheviks, right? Even though I myself am not a Bolshevik, right? Um, they had like many interesting things to say. Lenin was a very smart person. It's interesting to like think about what Lenin had to say about these things. But there are like many, 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 many thinkers on the left, right? And we can be engaging broadly with them. But we shouldn't be just like reading all the time either, you know? Um, I think that like, you know, it, it would be, it, it's really useful to start thinking about um, um, actionable policy goals, things that could actually happen in in real life, you know? Like, I hate to be like a bummer, but like the United States government is not going to abolish the police. That is, it's not, it's not going to happen. So organizing around that and making that the like the core goal of like an entire political movement is unfortunately just like pouring all of your energy into a hole. Um, because there are so many things that would have to be transformed first that like to just focus on this like super ultra long-term goal with like none of the steps before it is just like a waste of time, right? So like looking for like actionable policy goals, like for example, and they could be like pretty like pie in the sky ones too, but just something that, that could actually happen in this timeline, you know, um, without like everything else, like just being completely different than what it is, you know, I think is a good thing to do. And like, for example, um, thinking about realistic ways that we could um, move away from landlordism as like the main way in which like everyone gets their housing, you know, would be really cool. There are things that have been done in other countries that we could emulate, you know, and th these have been done by, you know, usually it's like a combination of like a, like a social movement and like a political party or something like that, you know, um, putting pressure here and like winning elections there and, you know, putting, you know, it's, it's operatives in positions of power to pass um, municipal laws saying that if you leave an apartment empty for over a month, then it gets seized, for example, and given to someone, right? Which like highly motivates landlords to rent that fucking apartment out for whatever price they can get, right? So like, that's just like one little policy goal. And like, you know, that would be difficult to accomplish in like a city like Seattle, but not impossible. Like it's not something that could never happen in a city like Seattle, right? And so I think that like, it's good to look at policy goals that might actually happen and then figure out ways to like build movements that are dedicated to making them happen. Um, and it's something that we have sort of like lost track of on the left, I feel like in 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 many places in North America. Yeah. Um, I just want to briefly, briefly say something. It's a bigger question that we want to give more time to so other people can ask questions. But in terms of like what you were saying about working across difference, you know, one little exercise that I use in like a solidarity workshop training that I do, it's really basic, but it's like in we're constantly really focusing on how we're different, you know. So what I try to get people to do is to think about someone who they think is really different from themselves, just like a person who they would think they don't have anything in common with. And I'll, I get them to think of that person first. And then I get them to write a list of everything that they have in common with that person. Um, and I think that that kind of we need to move towards that kind of thinking. And people say all sorts of things. They love their family, for example. I love my family. They probably love their family, you know, or like they like food. Um, they also need to eat food to live. So it's just like things like that. But it's like really basic, but it's like very like, what do we fucking share in common? Right. And 
really trying to get people to think about that. And then along with that, you know, is the is the concept of tolerance, right? Where it's like we don't actually need to like fully accept each other, understand each other or like be on the same page about everything to work together. What we need to do is figure out, you know, how can we focus on what we have in common and treat each other with dignity and respect across our differences? That's like a very minuscule answer to a huge question. But thank you for the question. I do have a question at the tail end of what I'm about to say, but I just wanted to make a a point as quickly as I possibly can before that. I usually tend to wonder, but this time I'll try to keep it to, to a minimum. Uh, it's very interesting, though. One thing that I did many years ago, and the as the pandemic really took hold and everything, first few months of 2020, the one thing that I realized is that I've never been personally canceled myself, but I preemptively withdrew from any sort of, okay, even after it's safe enough to um, hang out with people again, see people again, uh, withdraw myself socially from anything because um, I had just graduated from high school and uh, I, in the first few months of that year, I started to struggle with I've always been somewhat of an anxious person. It got worse. OCD kicked in, which is not something that I knew I had until then. <laughs> and I, having all that time to think to myself, I started to to think about, well, I've done some v very not nice things and uh, I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm really public because I feel that being in public in any capacity would be harmful to people, so I withdrew socially. One thing that I didn't know is that cancel culture can really be bad for somebody who has pretty bad anxiety, pretty bad OCD, because you're already struggling with a lot of other things, and you have something else added to the plate. So, um, and just being worried about saying the wrong thing. I'm an immigrant. English is not my first language. Never has been. Um, and hardly sound like a couple or something. It's just mostly a thing of I just worrying about saying the wrong thing and it just all the concern and just, you know, I just being, you know, just being worried about like saying the wrong thing, anything that I say will produce an effect that is undesirable and just already having to worry about all these things and already having to worry about a language that I do not speak at home, did not speak at home at the time, and just having to be very anxious. And it, the whole thing was, I already have a struggle whether it's pronounced sponge or sponge. I really don't need to have anything else added to my plate. And so I just withdrew socially completely. And my girlfriend introduced me to your work and... It was very liberating. It was very affirming. I did not know that that sort of um, thinking could actually exist left to circles. And I just figured well, that's very good um, that somebody acknowledges fallibility and everything. And uh, I've now started to come out of my shell. And uh, it's been a process of many years and everything. And so I just want to... Thank you. The job, the, you, the the work that you do has been extremely, extremely meaningful to me. I now have friends who value me for what I am, can see 
the sum of all parts. And that's something that I will always be grateful. And many factors went into that. Your work being a major factor, though. So it's something I really appreciate. Um, the question that I actually have is, do you have any suggestions for further reading? That was amazing. Thank you. Um, um, <laughs> blessing. Well, I mean, I have lots of suggestions for reading, but I guess it's like about what specifically, you know, and and like I have a, a broad range of like what I find useful in my own practice of coming into all of this stuff. Um, so I'm not sure. Do you have like a specific suggestion for reading? Okay, so there, there's there's very little on the left about cancel culture. I, yes. There's like a couple names. Um, there's Kai Cheng Tom is amazing, mm -hmm. friend of ours. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's she's a buddy of ours. Um, there's Adrian Maria Brown. Poor Adrian Marie though. Yo, she like when she wrote, "We will not cancel us." Like, um, people came for her. People fucking came for her. Really hard. And they were like, "Fuck you! You can't fucking say that." And then she like completely like chopped apart her book and then rewrote it, but full of like references to like accountability and like crawling towards dignity and stuff. And like, you know, it, it was like really sad because she was like onto something really cool, and then people were like, people just like destroyed her shit, and then she just like collapsed completely, and then just like rewrote it. Um, but yeah, she definitely has some like interesting things to say about it too. But, um, in terms of like, like cool reading to do about socialism and stuff, we always recommend Jacobin. Jacobin is an amazing publication. It's like a magazine that you can get. Like, I like to have like the physical magazines, like cool to read. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Um, other than socialism stuff, you know, it's a weird recommendation, but I recommend Mary Oliver. Um, <laughs> I recommend Mary Oliver. Like, Yes, like she, she's a fucking poet and well, she's no longer with us, but she's a poet and her writing is about our, our fundamental belonging to this world, you know, our fundamental fucking belonging to this world. So I, I really recommend Mary Oliver. And I think in terms of like spiritual teachers, she's a big one for me. You Yo, know? also Kim Stanley Robinson, yeah. who is a science fiction writer, yeah. but is fucking amazing. And uh, the quote, the wild world itself is holy that we're always yeah. talking about is from um, the Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. Also, his book, The Ministry for the Future, is like a fucking must read. If you can get through the first like 30 to 50 pages of it, which like make you want to get like a lobotomy, um, <laughs> it, it's really good. Um, it's, and it's, it's hopeful in a very depressing way. But uh, yeah, anyways, you should definitely read that. Kim Stanley Robinson. More questions. Hey, thanks for, thanks for being here tonight. Um, I want to ask, uh, somebody said earlier about, um, uh, like pushing abusers out of a community essentially. And the idea that like, I I'm, I'm with you on understanding the idea that, you know, that just pushes them around to other places, doesn't actually resolve the problem, but I, I struggle with kind of holding that intention with the, the goal of, we'll say protecting the community you have otherwise. And so I think along those lines, I'm curious to hear a little more about what you think about for when you see handle situations like that, how do you, how do you protect the community? Do you have other resources or recommendations? Yeah, it's a big question. And I feel like I was kind of going on and on and on at that part because I have so much to say about this, but I'll just say like a little bit more. The thing is, is that even if we make a list of all the known abusers in a community and we try to drive them out or warn everybody about them, guess what? There's others that we don't know that are not on that list, Right. And so we actually need skills for intervening on and knowing how to address abuse as it's unfolding in spaces and in our 
relationships and communities without just simply like knowing all the people who are doing it because there's always going to be others. So I think that those types of skill sets are more effective than simply like trying to drive people out. I've pointed it out before, but like driving people out literally just drives them somewhere else. So it's like maybe you're making your community safer, but ultimately they're going somewhere. So it's not really solving the problem. So the 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 four things that I was talking about, I think, are like the like helping people to transform their behavior, developing intervention skills within communities and also facilitated boundaries, which I didn't talk about super a lot. But basically like what that means is, is, you know, it could be a situation where somebody doesn't want to be in a space with someone else because like they like violently abuse them and it's feels terrifying to be in the same space with them, right? So we can make choices about being like, look, this person wants to access this space. Can you step back and allow this person to access this space? And I call that facilitated boundaries of being like, how can community be like, okay, we're not driving this person out of social belonging, but we are being like, you know, this other person needs to be able to access spaces and can't when you're there. So how do we like facilitate that? Yeah, there's also like basic boundaries that um, spaces can have too. I would say that like, okay, very frequently, it'll be like this person is alleged to have done something to someone at some time. And therefore, like this, like uh, vegan bakery is not going to allow him to come in. Right. Um, but like. <laughs> like that's, that's usually how that shakes out. Right. Um, OK, so I work at a homeless shelter. Right. People come in. Um, basically, 100 percent of the people who come to the shelter have probably like abused somebody. Right. <laughs> it's, it's like there's like messy people with messy lives. Right. Um, and very often I have to make sure that people are being um, that I have to I have to have facilitated boundaries for people. I have to make sure that like somebody who's coming in um, who is very likely to try to like punch her ex-boyfriend like doesn't do that. You know, and I have to make sure that they're like both allowed to be in the space or like one of them maybe isn't, you know. But usually if someone is not allowed in the space, um, it's because uh, like they have done something in that space that makes it so that that space has a concrete reason to to say like you are no longer welcome here. It's because you did something here that we know about that we saw, you know, that violated some set of like basic like principles that we have in this space. Like you can't, you know, use aggressive language towards staff or something. So now you're not allowed back in, you know, um, whereas just being like someone told us something about this person and therefore they're not allowed in the vegan bakery is not um, that's not like really like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think like we lose specificity in the way that we talk about abuse because we talk about abuse as if there's just a general badness about this person that that makes them generally dangerous. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, actually, they abused a person in a specific way under a specific context. And that is the, what they're most likely to do again, because that's what they do. Right. And so, like, if it's like, what did they do? And where did they do it? What was the context under which they did it? And that is where we need to be like paying attention. Right. So. Like an example of this is like, does someone who um, had a domestic violence situation where they were like abusing their girlfriend, does that mean it's unsafe for them to like play in a band? Right. Like and and I think that we need to like actually think about that, honestly, because I think that punishment and intervention get conflated in these things, because sometimes we say what we want to do is create community safety. But what we're actually doing is saying that someone who has done something abusive is not allowed to have anything nice or cool in their life. Again, like being a band, right? And some people can make that argument. Like, I personally don't agree with it because I don't agree with punishment. But if you, if you believe, if somebody believes that a person who has been abusive should never be allowed to have nice things or cool things or be in a band, like that's an argument that could be made. But I don't see how this guy playing on stage in front of all of these people is like at risk of abusing someone while he's doing that because he's on stage in front of a whole bunch of people. It's probably not where that's going to happen, right? 
So I think we need to be doing like specific interventions to specific behaviors and being like more like pragmatic in our approaches rather than like a general social ban. Yeah. One thing I want to just like add to complicate this piece is one understanding I have from Kai Cheng Tom's course is that abuse happens specifically when there's a power dynamic. Um, and so I do think that there's ways that people have like a lot of power and we might sometimes want to decrease the amount of power that they have in a community or in, you know, like in a, in culture um, because they that is like increasing their their capacity to abuse people. And so, I, you know, I don't know that that means like we cancel their band. Like, I don't think that's the solution, but it can be like, you know, people are going to like not buy like some people are going to like not buy your concert tickets for like a while and there's like an impact of your actions and people knowing about it uh, I think that's different than saying like I don't believe that you're a human capable of healing or you know capable of like worthy of belonging but like I'm not going to directly like support my like give my resources to support um support you when like you've you know shown that some I agree and I also think that people, like, because of the way that the that cancel culture works and because accountability is never achieved in cancel culture, this withdrawing is indefinite into the future, right? And also it is enforced through harassing people into also doing the withdrawing who don't want to do it, right? That's, so that's it. That's if I want to still listen to this band, but other people are like, no, I'm choosing to withdraw support from the band, well, I'm going to get harassed for choosing to still listen to the band. And so... There is a social pressure to withdraw support and there's no end in sight for it. And so part of the problem with that is that it's super fucking not motivating to change. Because the thing is, is that if I'm if I see around me that people who have been marked as abusive are never allowed to have nice things again. What the fuck is the point of me doing all of the hard work of transforming my behavior if I believe that I will never be defined as anything else? Right. And so for me, I actually think that it is a more effective strategy to continue to allow people to have nice things in their lives because that is motivating for them to change. And I think that like the the piece about like people holding them responsible or like encouraging them to take responsibility is not like the general public as much as it is like their fucking relationships and the people in their life who are like, hey, you know, not only does it suck for everybody else that you're being abusive, but it sucks for you, man. It sucks for you and you can do better than this and we want to help you and we're going to like resource you and whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. I think also like because a lot of this shit like happens in the context of like scenes where everyone's very cool and is very concerned with being cool, we conflate coolness with power. And so that's why it's like, who are the people who are constantly getting canceled? It's like band guys. It's like tattoo artists, you know, it's like people who are cool. And like the, the idea that you can like sort of like remove power from someone by being like you can't be a tattoo artist or anymore or something like that is like kind of like misunderstanding what power is. And it makes a lot of sense if someone is like a teacher who abuses their student to make sure that that person never fucking teaches again. That makes sense. And that's not cancellation. And that's just like fucking common sense. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, so that's, I'm just going to leave that there. Yeah, I it's a big could... question though. We have time for one more question. Someone has the bike already. Oh, hi. <laughs> um, so I guess this question is for Clementine, but I would love to hear anyone's answers. Um, there's uh, something that you wrote that I think about a lot um, about how in academic and intellectual spaces a lot. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so nervous. Now I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> um, how, oh, 
also how in academic spaces we are encouraged and kind of congratulated to poke holes in each other's arguments and kind of like criticize each other and tear each other down and how that will make us smarter and better um, and how that can kind of stagnate a movement um, and how it keeps us from creative problem solving. And I'm curious if you think that there's a space for critique in this work and in activism or if we should really just be kind of like experimenting and piggybacking off each each other. No, I definitely think that there's a space for critique, but I think that critique, sincere critique has to come from a place of understanding. And so if you want to critique someone's ideas, you first have to demonstrate that you've understood them, right? And so like this is just sort of like basic, like uh, I hate saying big words like this because I think I'm going to say it wrong, but like pedagogy where it's like this is like about teaching and learning. I don't know. I think that's the right word. But basically, it's like basically can you say that that person's argument in your own words, right? Like can you actually read or, or listen to what they said and then say it back like you? Like convincingly. And if you can do that, then you probably understand it, right? And so, so many fucking people don't do that, right? Like, they clearly do not understand the ideas that they are critiquing. They are actually not in good faith. And that means, like, they're not actually sincerely trying to understand those ideas on their own terms. They're immediately entering into it with, like, their own framework, right? And there are different frameworks that don't map onto each other. And so if you're in this framework and you're trying to understand that idea with your framework, but that idea is coming out of a different framework— you're not going to understand the idea. You actually have to step outside of your framework and try to understand the idea on that idea's terms and in the framework that it's coming out of. And there are many, many different frameworks. And so you can do that and then decide, I actually fucking disagree with this, right? I don't agree with it. I Here's all of the, the reasons why I don't think that it makes sense. And I do that all the time. I'm constantly fucking critiquing shit. Like you probably heard me doing it up here significantly. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think to be sincere and responsible in that work, we have to try hard to listen to what is being said before we critique it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's like a lost art, man. Like they don't fucking teach this shit in school anymore. Yeah. It's crazy, you know? I was a TA for a while and like I had to like mark a lot of papers and I was like, Jesus Christ, like no one is teaching these kids how to like fucking think about anything. It's wild, you know? I hate to be like super, super snobby, but it's like fucking true. Um, and like, you know, it was, but it's something I had to teach myself, man. And I was in school for like a billion years, you know, and I had to like, I had to like force myself to learn this shit. And luckily I had like a really cool uh, prof when I was doing a master's who was like, you suck at writing. You think you're good at writing because everyone told you you're good at writing, but you suck at writing because you don't fucking pay attention to the arguments of other people, you know? And I was like, fuck. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it's, it's super fucking real, man. And like, I don't know, this is like a really annoying thing about social justice world in academia is that like, basically they, what they do is they like train people, they train academics to... Uh, point out ways in which other people's ideas are problematic, not to understand those yes. ideas and then be able to like, argue with the content of the ideas. It's yes. really fucking annoying, man. But it reminds me a lot of religious people, like, yeah. you know, like like people who are like fundamentalist Christians or something who like if you like talk about like, you know, uh, the, like a, an animal or something like the evolution of like a species of iguana, they'll be like, well, the earth was created 6,000 years ago. So that doesn't matter. Like, you know, it, they're just like, you know, they're like wrong, <laughs> you know, and like, it's just like, okay, well, cool. You have like this like faith based orthodoxy, but like that doesn't help us like to, to communicate with one another about ideas. But yes, critique is very important. Right. And I'll just say one last thing about this. It's like I, I want people to develop confidence in themselves as thinkers and don't be fucking intimidated by the big words and shit, because it's like the same ideas can be articulated in normal people speak. And if know? they can't, they're a bad idea. And so if you're listening to it and you're like, 
that's just kind of confusing. Like, you know, like you might need to talk to some people to like figure out what the fuck they're saying between all those big words or like look some stuff up on Google and stuff like that to like actually analyze what they're saying. And often, like if you if you're listening to thinkers, they often have interviews and stuff where they talk on podcasts and stuff. They talk more normal in interviews normally. So like that can be a way of like penetrating sort of like more dense academic thought. But like trust yourself as a thinker to actually be able to like hear what they're saying and decide what you think about it. You know. Thank you. We would really love to hear everyone's questions, and some of you probably haven't eaten dinner, so. <laughs> We want to respect that. <laughs> um, we're just, yeah, I feel everybody's eyes. Yeah. We're just going to do some quick closing remarks. I guess I'll start. I'm feeling really grateful. Um, this is a step in, this is the closest felt feeling I've ever had to the step to, towards the world we want to build. You know, in the militant social justice culture, in the nexus, it's like, yeah, but it's also like, you know, yes, in the body. <laughs> and like, here we are talking about solidarity in, in the bathroom downstairs. I was like, would we be closer to, um, to socialism? Thank you. Um, if we talk to each other in the bathroom, you know, we were all in the bathroom kind of silently <laughs> peeing. And I was just like, the Romans, you know, like bathrooms used to be, no, no, <laughs> bathrooms used to be open. Like, you know, the bat, the, they, they, like bathrooms used to be open and people were talking to each other while taking a shit like you know a thousand years ago no joke like like kindness and open bathrooms is the solution to capitalism kindness thing yeah it's just like can we be together can we really just be together and look at each other and really well being yes in our humanness right and can we just with all of our shit uh and and yeah just feeling that gratitude so did you want to introduce the next thing that's the last thing that's going to happen? Or? Yeah, sure. Um, one of my bodies of work is around um, around the history of capitalism. And I've also been looking at some new studies coming out of the University of Manitoba around uh, neurodecolonization and how we can actually physiologically heal our brains from capitalism. There's a professor, his name is Yellowbird, Michael Yellowbird. He says there's he's been studying 10 practices that heal our brain from capitalism and it's uh, sleeping well, it's being together, it's eating together, it's being in nature, it's dancing, it's singing, it's uh, micro stresses on the body like cold plunging and saunae um, and laughter and uh, running if your people were hunter gatherers, running as well. It can literally grow your telomeres back on your chromosomes. So we're going to practice one of those things together right now. We're going to sing together. We have a song in our community that is about this. Yeah, so I want to bring in this song, and this is called The Shame Song. Some of you know it. Um, this is by a dear friend of ours named Alexandra Blakely, or Ale, who really wanted to be here. She loves Clementine's work, but she's doing an awesome song circle on the East Coast. Um, all the people are like, oh, you're going to make me sing? Bye. <laughs> I see you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, all good. But just a little thing about singing. Um, all voices are welcome. There are no good or bad voices, just the same as there are no good or bad people. Um, and singing together in our bodies is what helps us feel uh, feel good. And um, so this song, this song is, um, I'm going to speak the words to the, to the chorus. Um, it's really impactful. So, um, 
Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. So I too deserve belonging. I too deserve to heal. I too deserve aliveness. I deserve to court the shadows here. So I'm going to sing this two lines at a time, and I'd love for you all to sing it back to me. I too deserve belonging. I too deserve to heal. I too deserve belonging. I too deserve to heal. I too deserve aliveness. I deserve to court the shadows here. I too deserve aliveness. I too discard the shadows here. I too deserve belonging. You know this part. I, I too deserve to heal. I too deserve aliveness. I deserve to court the shadows here. When we do it the second time, we go down. Oh, it goes down and then up? I, I try to sing the harmony is what is the problem. Oh, you're harmonizing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I too deserve the longing. I too deserve to heal. I too deserve aliveness. I deserve to court the shadows here. I too deserve belonging. I too deserve to heal. I too deserve aliveness. I deserve to court the shadows here. Yeah. So there's a verse as well. We'll do it call and response style. So Lux, do you want to model the response? Yeah. So it goes, it goes, if I'm going to fall, if I'm going to change, may it serve the whole, may it turn a page. And if I'm going to fall, if I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, if I'm going to learn, I'm going to fail, if I'm going to learn, may it serve the whole, may it serve the future ones. So we'll just call out the words as we go and you'll catch on. Yeah. If I'm, okay. if I'm going to fall. If I'm gonna fall, you can sing. And if I'm gonna change, and if I'm gonna change, may it serve the whole. May it serve the whole. Serve the future. May it turn a page. We're so tired right now. <laughs> We're doing great. And if I'm gonna fail, if I'm gonna fail. And if I'm gonna learn, if I'm gonna learn, may it serve the whole, may it serve the whole, may it serve the future. What chorus? I too deserve belonging. 
I too deserve to heal. I too deserve aliveness. I deserve to court the shadows here. I too deserve belonging. I too deserve to heal. I too deserve aliveness. I deserve to court the shadows here. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you so much, Clementine and Jay, for coming. Thank you to Morgan. Thank you to Lux. Thank you to Aliko. Thank you, Beck. Thank you, Song. Go be free, eat food, and remember to take care of yourselves. Take care coming. of our bodies. Do your aftercare. We'll see you at the party. <laughs> so if you enjoyed that conversation, I really highly recommend you check out all of our Instagrams. You can find Clementine Morgan at Clementine Morgan. That is Morgan spelled with two R's. You can check out Lux Gibson at healing.rising on Instagram or healingrising.com. And you can check out Bex at Bexual Healing on Instagram and Morgan Vanderpool at Morganic Movement on Instagram. And then me, you can check me out uh, at The Alico Tree. Keep in touch with these types of conversations and check out Clementine's podcast, Fucking Cancelled. And also start having these conversations with your friends. I really want to invite that. What is it like to find compassion for ourselves and each other what is it like to find ourselves in each other what is it like to actually build a movement rooted in actual belonging and the ability to make mistakes and that being okay what is it like to move forward in a good way i'm gonna leave you with that today have a beautiful rest of your day or evening wherever you're at enjoy it endless blessings catch you later